Hello everyone, before we get into this episode, it's important for you to remember to be empathetic and understanding for every single guest that I have on this show. If you enjoy this content, please make sure to subscribe and follow because I do release weekly videos every single week. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Deep Dives into the Minds of Esports. My name is Blake Panashevitz, and today's guest has been someone I have really been looking forward to getting on the show for a long time, really since I started the show. He was previously the head coach of Misfits Gaming, rebranded into the Florida Mayhem for Season 1 and part of Season 2. He is now a content creator and private coach. Please let me introduce Vitas Lysitis, maybe better known as Mineral. Welcome to the show. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. We have a lot to talk about. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I was, I'm liking your content. That's one of the things that we'll start off first is I, you're starting to do content. Um, I hope you keep it up because right now that's like the first thing that I judge every content creator by is how long they actually keep it going. Um, it's been really good though. Uh, I think that it's been really uh, widely receptive. But one of the things I want to start off very easily with, with a kind of easier question, you had mentioned that you were into journalism and that you actually have a journalism background, which we're going to dive way more into uh, kind of later on. But with that being said, if you had to look at the landscape of journalism now, who is a journalist that you really kind of look up to and admire right now? Hmm, That's a good question, uh, because I think in kind of a large scale, I think journalism is kind of like the modern journalism is completely different from what it was. And it was sort of already in that transitional period when I was getting my degree. So I think today's journalism there's not a lot of people you can look look up to in terms of like investigative journalists or anything like that i've always been kind of into sports and what i wanted to do with journalism was being a sports journalist so sort of the people that i look up to are journalists who mostly nba journalists because that's what i followed the most so zach Lowe, especially for his writing and for his podcasting uh also uh, Bill Simmons, I think, is obviously a legend, a sports legend. So he's um, he's terrific, and uh, yeah, I think those those guys are two guys who I constantly follow. Yeah. So what I was asking you is, what is one thing that you kind of look for in these people that really makes mm -hmm. them stand out as good writers that you would want to take for yourself? Well, I just think they have uh, versatility, and I think in modern journalism, you need to be versatile. You can't just come in as a good writer and expect to have a successful career. I think you have to be able to do podcasts, you have to be able to be on video, you have to be able to write, you know, all, all of these mediums you have to be good at, or at least sort of develop skills in if you want to be successful. And I think that's what they have, especially Bill Simmons, you know, he's a terrific writer, he writes, he has a very, um, I guess, peculiar writing style in terms of it's kind of conversational, it's, um, it's easy to digest. So it's, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of, um, it, it's just kind of the versatility. And then, and as, as far as his podcasts go, I, I love that he has kind of a conversational type of style where, again, it's very easy to, to digest. You don't have to like sit down and listen to it. You just listen to it on the go. And I think, uh, yeah, those those guys um, are very, very skilled. Yeah, I know that for like me, when I was looking at doing like podcasts, like there was definitely people who like stood out and like Joe Rogan is one who I always like to watch. But like mm -hmm. actually Howard Stern was someone like I don't really appreciate a lot of his like jokes just because I don't find the crude humor that funny. Um, but like his actual interviews were always something that I was quite amazed by when he would interview people and talk to them and they would just start telling him things like it was a conversation between two people. Um, so those are like people that I always gravitate to and I can kind of appreciate their their different styles and the way that they would approach things um, going in here. Mm -hmm. So that kind of that kind of brings me up to my next question. You, you 
you have a very interesting name. Uh, and one of the things that I kind of looked up on you is that it says that you're from both Sweden and Lithuanian, but your, your last name is definitely Lithuanian. Um, mm -hmm. So did you grow up mostly in Lithuania? And I probably said that wrong just because it's a little bit of a tongue twister. Or did you grow up in Sweden? Uh, so I grew up in Lithuania uh, until I was like eight years old. I sort of moved around quite a bit. And then when I was eight years old, my mom took, uh, she was, she had already moved to Sweden a couple of years prior, and then she took me to Sweden. So I lived in Sweden pretty much since I was, um, you know, eight and a half or so until uh, kind of uh, my late teens when I finished school. And then I went to university in the UK. So I moved to the UK when I was maybe 18 or 19. And then uh, I came back to Sweden after that. And then obviously the esports uh, life took me uh, all over the world. Yeah. So can, tell me a little about a little bit about uh, growing up in Lithu Lithuania. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned that you, you lived there till you were eight. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Uh, I have a half sister. My parents are divorced. Uh, they divorced sort of around the time uh, when I moved, you know, so it was, it was kind of a tug of war in terms of uh, where I would go and, and, and things like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I never had a brother or sister growing up. So I only have a half sister from my dad's side, who obviously came along after uh, the divorce. So, you know, it, it's not because I don't spend a lot of time in Lithuania. She's not someone I'm very close to, really. So, uh, you know, she, she's obviously a half sibling. But, yeah, I haven't I don't really have a sibling that I grew up with. OK, so what was it like growing up there then? In Lithuania? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Lithuania was fine. I think it, it was um, my childhood, I guess, was uh, quite fun. I lived very close to uh, uh, the daycare where, you know, you, you would stay until uh, you start school. Uh, after that, I, you know, obviously went, um, I went the first year of school at, in my home city. And then for year two, actually, because my mom was already gone, my dad took me with him so i had to switch schools and you know kind of uproot myself and go to and live in another city for a year or two i stayed there for maybe like five months and then once again my mom took me uprooted me once again then i moved to sweden so sort of in this kind of cycle of um um you know one and a half years i moved for like two years i moved schools and like had to find new friends and all that like maybe you know four, four times so it was um it was a bit tough, I guess, up, up until that point, up until starting school, it wasn't anything special. I, I lived a fine life. I went out with friends and played and it was uh, it was all good. But yeah, I think sort of transitioning to that period, it got kind of uh, harder. But yeah, I don't remember too much about Lithuania because I was very young. So yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that your your parents got divorced and it sounds like when you when you describe like the, the back and forth moving, it sounds like you're probably right around what, five or six when they divorced? No, so I was so I was I think I think I was already eight when I when they divorced. My mom moved to Sweden when I was seven, right when I was about to start school because she was uh, uh, gonna do her PhD here, mm -hmm. and um, you know she couldn't do it in Lithuania, and she got a lot of funding to do that. So as she pursued that, she came by and visited every once in a while, but obviously she was very busy. So I kind of just lived with my grandma because my dad was also in, a, in another city. Uh, so basically, I just kind of grew up uh, with with my grandma, and then because you know they were kind of separated, I don't know really what was going on behind the scenes. But eventually, I guess the divorce materialized um, when I was eight, eight and a half, maybe something like that. Um, so you you said that you lived with your grandma uh, primarily growing up. Uh, what's your grandma like? 
well, my grandma is sort of one of the sweetest uh, people I know. Like she, she's really the most selfless person I know, and I think she kind of instilled uh, some some of those qualities in me. You know, now she's obviously a lot older. She's, um, you know, she's suffering uh, with uh, kind of the the diseases and all that stuff that all old people uh, suffer suffer from. So. You know, it, it is kind of challenging to see someone, uh, you know, sort of, I don't want to say like disappearing, but like, it, it, you know, not being the same person you knew, but sort of when I grew up, and again, she was super selfless. She always put everyone, not, not just myself, but she put everyone, everyone's needs in front of her own, you know, and that's kind of uh, uh, the person she was. And uh, that's why I sort of was very happy growing up you know she took she took care of me very very well so that first year of school and as i was growing up you know i was i was very happy mm-hmm. uh, that must have made it really hard when your parents are actually divorcing because you have this really stable foundation in your life mm-hmm. with your grandma who sounds like an amazing human being um and mm-hmm. then suddenly you have to like what one day you're moving to your dad's what was that like for you uh, it was weird because I didn't really have a say about it. My dad just kind of came around. And he was like, "Well, we're moving. You're coming to live with me." And I'm like, "Okay." I was I was kind of scared, a little bit scared of my dad at that point. Like he was the authoritative figure, I guess, who I didn't really see that much. Maybe he came around every once in a while on weekends, but uh, you know, he wasn't really there, and I was a little afraid of him. So I wasn't too happy about moving, but I didn't really have a say about it. So it was it was weird. I think the hardest part was just like for the third time. Because, you know, you go from daycare, you have your friend circle there, and then you go to first year of school where, you know, you have a different, you have to like kind of rebuild that foundation. And then immediately after, as soon as you feel comfortable there, you you have to move again. So, um, you know, from, from kind of a social side of things, I think it was very difficult. And also, you know, not having my grandma there as kind of a support uh, person supporting me. So I think I kind of became a little more introverted when I moved uh, in with my dad because I was just kind of, um, you know, I guess I was shocked because of how much change there was in my life. Mm-hmm. So when that happens, when you move all these different times, you mentioned that the social aspect kind of got hit um, and that you became more introverted. Uh, what did that kind of look like? Was it just you not willing to hang out with people? Did people not really get along with you because of all, like you just couldn't socialize? Like, what did it look like? No, I think people liked me. Actually, I, d- I did make friends, but it was just, I don't know, it was weird. I, I guess m- more so than when I moved with my dad. I think it was more so when I moved to Sweden when you could really see that because, you know, that was, again, like the third or the fourth time where I had to do the same thing. But now I'm moving to a country where I don't speak the country, so I can't really even make friends. And I have to go to class with uh, other students who don't speak the language, you know, so I'm kind of falling behind in school. And I, th- I think, I mean, I picked up language, the language pretty quickly, but for some reason, I just wouldn't talk with anyone. You know, I, I could speak it. There was one friend that I had privately who I spoke to, and he was sort of the only person who knew what I sounded like, because he was the only one who I, who I actually spoke to. And while I was in class to like get attention, I was sort of banging a pen against uh, the table, you know, if I needed assistance from the teacher or whatever. So I don't know you know, reflecting back, I really don't know what was going on in my head, you know, what, what I was thinking, why that happened. It was sort of probably just kind of a traumatic um, mental block or something that eventually, like after a year, I just overcame. And then, then, I, you know, the teacher started complaining about me never shutting up and rather than kind of not talking, you know, because people are worried, you know, everyone, they know that I can speak the language, I can write, everything's fine, but I'm just not speaking. 
Um, but, you know, I, I, I can't really explain why it was, but I think it was tr- sort of just kind of a traumatic uh, transition uh, overall. Mm-hmm. So that transition from your dad's to moving to Sweden, was that something mm-hmm. that was also kind of just sprung upon you one day? You find out that, hey, you're moving to Sweden. Yeah, that was actually, that was one of the only memories I have from living with my dad was when I was, I was, uh, for some reason, the teacher told me to kind of stay back in, in class after everyone left. And I kind of just sat around and didn't know what was going on. And then um, sort of someone opened the door who sort of looked like my mom. But I was like, in my mind, I'm like, well, there's no way it's my mom. I haven't seen her in forever. She's in Sweden. You know, there's no way that's her. So I kind of didn't even, you know, it's sort of registered. But I'm like, no, it's impossible that, that it's her. And then she kind of came forward. It was very emotional. And I was, she took me out to kind of... Uh, have tea or whatever and talk about things and she asked me like where do i you know where would you want to to go like are you happy here Uh, i would i would love to take you with me to sweden i was like yeah i I do want to um move in with you i do i do want to live with you you know because i I feel like i wasn't that happy um living living over there so you know that's um so, so it was definitely sprung upon me, and again, in a very shocking way, because my mom just appeared out of nowhere. I'm like, "Whoa, you know what, what's going on?" And then I have to, at eight years old, kind of give my take, even though obviously I'm in no position to decide. Yeah, they still kind of asked what I wanted, you know, which is, but again, for an eight year old, that's an insane responsibility uh, to bear, you know. And I think, um, yeah, it was uh, it, it was a weird period. Yeah, I, I remember because my parents divorced when I was around at six. And I remember a judge actually asking me and my brother, hey, where do you guys want to live? And even to this day, I think, what the hell were they thinking? Like, how how is this a sane rationale for any adult to have? Let's just ask the eight-year-old, right, where the yeah. fuck they want to live. Um, no. So one of the things you kind of talked about, it, you mentioned that being put in this decision and it being a it, – it's not an easy decision. And you don't really know the ramifications, right? Being eight, yeah. you're not like, what are the ramifications, ramifications of this decision? But one of the things you kind of mentioned is that you weren't feeling very happy. What do you think it was at that time that you weren't really happy about? I think I was just kind of used a little bit to being uh, coddled, I guess. So, you know, my grandma always took care of everything I wanted. She did, you know, I, I don't want to say like she did what I asked her, but like if there's something I wanted, she would always give stuff to me, you know, like like any grandma would, you know, and moving in with just my dad, I felt like I didn't really have that aspect, which I you know, as a kid, that's what you want. You're, you're, when you're a kid, you're like a little dog. You just want, you want snacks. You want, you know, you want to be coddled, right? Uh, so I think it was, it was probably mostly that, you know, and, and because, you know, growing up, I didn't really hang out with my dad that much. So I didn't really, it didn't really feel like I knew him that well. It was, uh, you know, it was kind of weird in that sense. Mm-hmm. So you end up moving over to Sweden. Uh, what did it look like? Like she comes there, she's like, "Oh, where do you want to go?" How long did it take? Was it like that same day you were on a plane to Sweden? Like, what did that transition look like? A uh, good question. I actually don't remember, but it was it was pretty quick. I think it happened within like a month. Obviously, there's paperwork and all that type of stuff that has to, um, you know, be taken care of. I do remember that I went to school for a little longer before everything was settled, uh, and I remember it was. It was already sort of uh, the the kids in the class already knew that I was leaving ahead of time because mm-hmm. I, I I vaguely remember getting like uh, as I was leaving these um, 
you know, these notes or whatever from other cl- uh, class members, like nice, nice notes or whatever, well wishes and, and things like that. So yeah, I think it may- maybe roughly a month it took um, before everything was, was finalized. Okay, so you end up moving to Sweden. You don't speak the language right away. What is that experience like going into some place where you don't speak the language at all? And believe it or not, this is actually kind of reminiscent if you look at Overwatch League teams, which is kind of why I want to bring it up. Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, a lot of teams end up having split rosters with different nationalities mm-hmm. and they don't speak the language. And a lot of times it's their first time in a new culture. So what was it like for you um, being eight, hitting a new culture that you did not speak the language to? Yeah, like I said, it was, I think it was just pretty traumatic. I didn't really know what to do or how to make friends or anything. And, you know, it, it's it's difficult to say. I, I don't really remember how I felt. And, and that's why, you know, even as I think back on that time, I, I can't really rationalize why I didn't speak for a year. And it's not like I didn't speak. That was, that was afraid, you know, of making mistakes. But I guess I could, within a year, I could speak almost perfect Swedish uh, with one of my best friends, like one of the only friends that I made during that year. And he was like, dude, why are you not talking? Like your, your Swedish is perfect. Are you ashamed or something? I'm like, no, I'm not ashamed. I just, I don't know. Like I, I can't, even there's something that is something there, you know? And so, yeah, I think, uh, it, it's difficult to say how, how I felt at that time. I don't really, I don't really know, but you know, and that was, those, those are, I suppose, sort of the ramifications yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah. So kind of growing up in Sweden, now you're in Sweden, what is Sweden like in comparative to Lithuania? Like, is there any differences? Are there similarities? What are, what are the two countries like? Mm-hmm. I mean, the living standard is obviously a lot higher. You know, it's, it's different politics as well. Sweden, you know, notoriously is a very socialist country. Uh, it's um, It's all about balance, which means that even when we came here and we didn't have much like my mom was working her phd she didn't have a lot of money we still lived relatively okay you know it wasn't like we were very very poor you know um obviously i didn't have nearly as much as current account of my classmates but it wasn't it wasn't anything yet, uh, terrible so to speak um and like now when i've gr- grown up here and i go back to lithuania i just see the culture differences and you, you can see that the living standard is reflected in the way people behave, I think, because I go to Lithuania and everyone is constantly negative in the way they interact with you, whether you're somewhere where, you know, someone is serving you or whatever, like no one is kind there. And if I stay there for like two weeks, that starts rubbing off on me and I just kind of become sad and angry when I stay in Lithuania. And I think just because I grew up in, in Sweden, it, when I go back to Lithuania, even though that's where I grew up, it feels almost like a culture shock nowadays. Mm-hmm. So let's let's briefly touch on it and then we'll kind of go back. You mentioned like the Sweden politics a little bit there, um, kind of being something that is very different. And from the United States, like me being here, uh, America, a lot of times people have a very negative connotation about Sweden politics. So do you very briefly kind of go over what is it like to live in Sweden for you? Like, what do you think about the politics there versus the other countries that you've lived in? So I think Sweden is a good country to have a comfortable life, you know, where it, it maybe were, I think there's, you're, it's sort of capped, you're sort of capped in terms of what you can achieve in a sense, because, you know, obviously you're not exposed to the North American uh, economy. And I think yeah. in, in North America, you can climb a lot higher in any given field. Uh, obviously in Sweden, the more you make, the more you're getting taxed. Like if you're yeah. making... Uh, you know, a decent salary, you can get, if you're a doctor, you can get taxed up to like 50, 55%. If you work overtime and you take that money out in salary, then that definitely gets capped at like 55%, which is insane. 
which means if you are an expert in your field and you climb that high, you go, well, why am I working here when I could be making four times as much money elsewhere, right? So I think uh, Sweden is a very good country to have a stable life. There's obviously health insurance, which is which you don't have in North America, really. So... <laughs> So I think, uh, yeah, it's 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 it, it is what it is. You know, if you don't if you don't really care, if you're not really career driven, I think it's an excellent country to live in. But obviously, if you want to kind of be significant in the world, I suppose, or really, um, you know, chase greatness, I think you kind of have to do it elsewhere. Okay, I think that's a kind of good description of. Positives and negatives there. So kind of look at growing up in Sweden. What is the school system like there? What was it like for you inside the Sweden school system? Well, at first I thought it was uh, compared to even uh, sort of in the one and a half years that I went to Lithuania, everything was way more strict than it was in Sweden. As soon as I came to Sweden, I'm like, first of all, I'm like, this is so easy. Uh, The stuff that you're forcing me to learn, I already learned like one year ago. So that was my first impression. And then after that, I think a big thing was that the grading system at the time when I was um, uh, going to school, we only had like four different grades. Like you can fail, you can pass, you can pass with distinction, or you can pass with whatever, very nice dis- yeah. distinction or whatever. So basically, there's if you pass, there's only three grades, right? And think when I was used to a grading system from one to 10 in Lithuania, there's a lot more ways that you can get valued, you know? And I thought, that also the fact that you you wouldn't separate students as much in terms of their grades as you would in Lithuania. I think that kind of made it a little easier to to kind of reach reach those milestones. So yeah, I thought I thought the school in Sweden was pretty easy. Like I, I never really studied that hard, but I never had any issues with like passing with distinction and pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. One of the things you'd mentioned is that like after the first year, after you kind of go over that, uh, like almost like anxiety hurdle of talking to people mm-hmm. that you would never, you would never shut up. You wouldn't stop talking. Right. So that, yeah. were you a, were you a very popular kid in Sweden? Were you someone who got along with everyone? Mm, no, I think, I think maybe I was more so in Lithuania, but I think when I moved to Sweden, I definitely wasn't. I think, again, that experience probably made me uh, have like a little bit of trust issues. Like I wouldn't really let people close to me maybe because i had this subconscious sense that well maybe i'm just gonna get uprooted again and why why should i kind of uh, make a bond here that's just gonna be painful to break maybe that's that's why so i think uh even up until now i think i've kind of maintained that to the point where i'm kind of difficult to get close to but when you get close to me you know, I, I've had a lot of good friends say that the first time they met me, like, well, you seem like kind of an asshole. But then when I got when I got to know you, you're an awesome guy. And I, you, it's literally like the two different people. Right. And uh, I was like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I kind of I kind of don't try to waste a lot of time with people who I don't feel like I'm going to see eye to eye with. Just because, Well, this guy's popular. Should I kind of get close to him. No, I like, I don't, I don't care about that. Is this a person that I could really get along with? Then, then I'm probably going to give that more of an effort, but I really never cared about popularity. I never was, um, I don't, I never was very popular. Obviously like most, I turned to video games, um, in, instead. And, you know, it was, um, that, that was kind of my calling, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I've kind of noticed, and you mentioned kind of turning to video games, and that is something that I actually see very often with pro players and you were a pro player for a while. Um, Looking at 
there's normally an age group, like an age, uh, a time period, like within an age where someone tends to uh, get more into video games. My experience generally is between like 14 and 17 are like the big years where people suddenly are uh, not really that social anymore at school at all. And it's more about video games. Um, did you have a kind of moment like that where it was this is like a hard dive into video games. This is all I really care about. Um, the social aspects don't matter nearly as much. Did you ever have a, a, a moment like that? I don't think there was really a moment. I think I've always loved video games. I think my first gaming memory is sort of when I was like four or five years old and I, was, um, I wasn't really old enough to play. Mm-hmm. But I remember sitting in my mom's lap as she was playing and I forced her to play Doom 1 because I was too scared to play myself, but I wanted to watch her play. And I was just watching like, you know, like nothing else mattered in the world. And, um, you know, that was sort of my first memory. And I was always interested in computers and in games. And I don't really remember when we finally actually got a good PC, but I remember one of the first games I really got into, or the first two games were sort of Quake 3 and RuneScape. And those are the games where I just spent a ton of time uh, playing, so I don't think it was it was a moment. I guess I guess the moment was getting finally getting a good enough PC to sort of dive into it. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a point where you kind of stopped hanging out with your your real life friends for video games, or was it just like uh, no, not really? Because again, my uh, I never really hung out with uh, friends too much anyway, okay. and because my my friend circle was very small, yeah. but. So, so when I actually hang out with, with my friends, it was sort of with the same same guys. I still almost almost daily hang out with like one of my best friends. And at school, we would you know sometimes hang out after school with some of the, those friends as well. It was just like I didn't have a a large circle, but I still you know I was still social with the people that I was kind of comfortable with or people that I liked. Mm-hmm. And then one other question about kind of like school, how, how did you do as a student? You obviously went off to university to do journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of student were you in school? Was there things that you were really good at, things you were bad at? Were you just all around good? You mentioned you didn't have to study a lot, which makes me hate you a little bit, but that's okay. Uh, what was school like for you in that aspect? Uh, so like I said, in Sweden, it felt pretty easy. Uh, I think I was kind of talented, but I was also a little bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Or not really lazy. Uh, I've always kind of had the mentality of if I find something that I'm really interested in, I become obsessed and I just commit everything to it and I try to become the best possible at it. And if it's something that I don't see the purpose in, if it's sort of a subject where I'm like, well, what is this knowledge going to give me? You know, for instance, physics. At the beginning of physics, I was very interested because it was stuff where you know, forces, how how do forces work? And, and these basic things where I'm like, oh, now this explains this aspect. And then you go deeper and deeper into that field. And now we're talking magnetic fields and shit. And I'm like, well, how is this going to benefit me in my life? I'm never going to, because I know that I don't want to work within physics, knowing about magnetic fields isn't really going to give me a lot of value. So I couldn't really bring myself to, you know, give a lot of effort. So, but at the same time, my mom was a top student, one of the best sort she passed with like medals or whatever in in school so she always pushed me insanely hard and if i didn't come home with like at least the second highest grade you know coming back with just a pass was completely unacceptable you know that that was like you might as well not come come home right so i think she pushed me to the point where i'm for the subjects that i didn't enjoy i did just enough to pass with distinction and then the subjects that I enjoyed, you know, English, I enjoyed just languages in general, maths I enjoyed, 
those subjects I kind of passed uh, with th- top grades as well. And I think, I mean, I think my average, if, if we, when we turned it into points, my average was like 9.15 out of 10 uh, oh, wow. during like upper secondary, uh, which, which wasn't too bad. But yeah, I, th- I think I could have potentially done better if I really committed, but I was just, I spent so much time playing video games. I, play, I was playing Team Fortress 2 at the time as well. And to me, that was... And I remember in the first semester, I actually got top marks in everything except for one subject. And I was like, well, I can't pass with top marks in every every subject over the next two years. The perfect score is ruined. I might as well kind of ease off the gas. So uh, that was kind of how I how I approached it. You know, I, I still tried hard, but I, you know, I, I didn't... Like, I, I just enjoyed games, I guess, too much, and I couldn't change my mentality at the time. Yeah, and that's, I mean, uh, you have to understand you're really young. Changing mentality when you are underneath a certain age is its actually really hard. Like, just because, like, the brain isn't fully developed and kids don't really yeah. like to think that they're wrong ever. Like, that's yeah. thats really one of the huge things there. So, I have to ask you, how old are you right now? Uh, I'm 26, coming okay. up on 27 in September. So, very, very old. It's okay. I'm uh, I'm 27 and I'll be 28 in January, so, yeah. Well, so okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's always depressing when you're getting closer to 30, 30 than 25. Yeah. 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 I feel that I've just kind of, I'm, I'm re- reveling in the fact that I look like I'm 12 and I still get carded for rated R movies. So I'm just like, okay, yeah. I just don't age at all. So yeah. everyone else is screwed and I'm not. So, um, kind of, kind of looking at, uh, you're finishing up school, right? And you're obviously doing quite well. Um, you're playing video games a lot. Um, Esports was not really a thing because we're close to the same age and esports didn't really start to hit really popular to like my third year of college um, when mm. League of Legends was like starting to like boom. Um, so like that's not really a viable path that you're thinking. I don't think that, oh, let's let's do this. So you're, you're going off into the world. Uh, you, you have to leave school. What makes you think I, I want to be a journalist, right? What, what, what is in your head that uh, this is the pathway of life that I want to take? Mm. So again, my mom really pushed me towards medicine. She was like, this is the only way you're going to always have a job. Your grandpa was a doctor. I'm a doctor, like a really, really successful doctor. So you're going to be a doctor. And I'm like, okay, I guess. And then I went to, I took this course in, in school before I kind of went on to university was sort of a medicine basic course. And that was the first time I actually fell asleep during a lesson. And that was kind of a sign to me like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor. And I, I was sort of considering what do I want to do? And it was sort of between psychology, uh, Spanish, you know, some kind of languages or journalism. And I was really interested in sports at the time as well. And I was watching, you know, these experts on TV and I was like, I, I could do that. I could be on TV and talk about these sports. Like, how awesome would that be as a job? And I thought, well, journalism is probably the way to go in, in that regard. So that's kind of how I decided to pursue journalism. And I also kind of wanted to get away a little bit and study abroad, see, see what it's like elsewhere, just kind of uh, make, make a jump, uh, being trying to be a little more independent when I was 18. So I thought, well, let me, let me try and move to the UK because when I moved to the UK, that was at a time where the tuition fees were still relatively cheap. Obviously I could study for free in Sweden, but I, mm-hmm. I, I like I wanted that experience, you know? So I, I ended up applying that year because the next year, the tuition fees like the tripled in price. So I was like, "Well, this is the last chance. If I do want to study in the UK, like I should go for it now." And uh, there were a lot of good like journalism. Like everyone has journalism in the UK. I also wanted to improve my English, so I was like, "Okay, let's let's do it." Mm-hmm. So up at 
up to that point, had you ever played in sports before? Were, were, were you someone who played in sports or just watched it? Uh, I mean, Lithuania, in Lithuania, basketball is really popular. It's like a second religion. So I played uh, quite a bit of basketball and I started playing when I came to Sweden as well. But it's one of the least popular sports in Sweden. We had like mm-hmm. two really shitty teams in the entire city. And when I went there, we, we had like one practice a week and no one really tried, you know, kids. Oh. Basketball practice was somewhere where parents send kids because just so that they get to move a little, not because anyone wants to pursue basketball. It's just kind of a throwaway sport where, you know, my kid needs to move. He's eating too much candy. Let him, let him play some basketball. Kids are just running around like it wasn't serious at all. And then I remember I started practicing during a summer in Lithuania. And obviously because it's culturally more accepted there, it was like nine and day difference. It was almost like army, like how competitive it was. It was like 40 guys. Everyone's going at it. And I was like, wow, this is, this is the competition that I enjoy. And I go back to Sweden and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore. I, I just saw how it's supposed to be and this is not it. And I just kind of uh, quit. But beyond that, I, I didn't really, I did some sports. I did like karate for like, you know, a couple of months, but that wasn't anything for me. And I think pretty early on, I just kind of uh, quit on sports, uh, even though I was, I, f- I feel like I was very talented, especially in ball sports, like anything involving a ball, like football, basketball, tennis, all of that stuff. I was very, very good at, and I really excelled in, in school during PE lessons uh, during that. So, so I, I kind of regret a little bit, I guess, not pursuing anything in that regard um but yeah i I never really did that much sports after that my passion kind of died down how did you maintain staying into sports kind of like watching it Uh, because i one of the reasons that i actually am not huge into sports is because like Mm -hmm. no one in my life growing up watched it and i never played any sports so for like me it was like i don't really have any attachment to this there's nothing there there's nothing that even drew me in none of my friends who i really hung out with watched sports either so it was just a kind of a combination of all of that um but Mm -hmm. when you talk about sports you you obviously there's a huge cultural aspect in Lithuania, uh, but you moved mm-hmm. out of there uh, pretty pretty early on. So you would have been in mm-hmm. Sweden where they don't view it. So what kind of made you pull to keeping in like touch with sports? Well, I think it is it is because it's culturally embedded in almost any Lithuanian. I, I still remember the days where, because you would watch Lithuania play, like a really small country that is still sort of ranked consistently amongst the five best countries in the world at basketball. And you get behind that as a fan, even when you're young. And I just have so many memories of witnessing these incredibly special moments rooting for Lithuania. And I think that passion just never dies down. Like it's embedded in you. And I think, you know, football is a lot more popular in Sweden. A lot of my friends were into football. I kind of enjoyed playing it. Uh, So I just started watching a little bit, picked up a team and then watched more and more. And I kind of got into that as well. I haven't really followed it uh, too much but uh, like lately, but it, it was something I really got into as well. And something I got into even more when I moved to the UK, because that's a sport that's culturally embedded in the British people. Like everyone goes to the pub, you know, every Wednesday and you know Saturday, Sunday to watch their teams. Right. So I think that's kind of how, uh, how it survived through, through the, through the passion and the cultural aspect. Okay. So now you move over to the UK, you're starting school, uh, you're working in journalism. What was that like for you getting into that? So I was shocked about, again, how easy it was or how, not, not necessarily easy, but how little you had to, to try or be in, in school. Like we, I had to be in, in a university for lectures maybe 10 hours a week or something. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was insane. I was like, wow, I have so much free time. 
if I skip this one lecture here as well, then I only need to go to the university like twice a week. So I had an insane amount of time, uh, like an insane amount of free time. And, you know, I, obviously I wasted a lot of time. I also started going to the gym like almost every day just to do something with my time. And I also started freelancing immediately, like when I was 18, 19 years old, because I felt, well, I have so much free time. Like everyone, everyone's out drinking, everyone's out partying, uh, which you do as well. Like it's, it's something I, I, I did as well, especially early on. But then after a while, I'm like, well, you know, I, I sh- I'm odd to do something to kind of separate myself from the pack if I want to be successful, because journalism is you know, it's it's kind of a dying business. It, the competition is fierce. I have to develop these skills that everyone already has when when they come out. Like try and develop a network. Like do do something. So and so as I just started watching a lot of uh, sports again, especially the NBA. I started freelancing a lot. I wrote over the, those three years, maybe you know, definitely I think over like a thousand articles. Everything from reports to opinion pieces to columns, and some of it was a lot of it was free at the time just because i want to experience some of it eventually i got paid for a little bit so that's that was kind of what i what i got up to doing during my studies i just felt like i need to sort of build out my uh resume at least as a writer and i'm you know i'm very happy that i did because you know i i I couldn't waste any any more time uh you know or or watch any more series it was uh you know you kind of get restless after a while yeah, so you're you're in there, you're freelancing, you're writing from that. Esports is starting to really get, I would say, popular if you're anyone who's mm-hmm. involved in the video games, obviously with League of Legends, um, starting to become popular like really, really bigly after like 2010. There were obviously other esports before that. Um, were you were you paying attention? Were you watching these things? Were you were you were you someone who was interested in esports mm-hmm. before this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I so I was very much into Team Fortress 2. I played that competitively. Uh, eventually got up to, you know, the top top division, the Premier Division. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually played with uh, Taimu in quite a few teams. And after that, I, I got kind of burnt out on TF2 a little bit. And I, st- I picked up League. I played that quite a lot. I eventually, I think, climbed to Diamond 1 or something. Uh, and this was sort of around the time, right before my move to the UK and right around the time when I moved to the UK, I kind of stopped playing for a while, but then I picked it up a little bit again. I played TF2 for like a couple of months, and then I just kind of stuck to a league after a while. But, you know, the issue was I I had a kind of a really bad laptop that was overheating, so Mm. between every game, I would have to put it outside, like next to the window, and let it cool off in in the cool winter air for for like 10 minutes before I could queue for the next game. Uh, but I was definitely paying attention. I, I was very interested in league at that time. I didn't. I, I stopped playing as much, and I started watching more because I, I felt like, okay, I'm covering sports, but maybe this is something I could cover too, uh, in terms of like covering and being an esports writer, which is why I started uh, following that. I, I did. I didn't really do that. I, I pursued a couple of opportunities, but nothing really materialized in terms of writing about esports uh, at that time. But it was something that I was looking into, and I thought, well, maybe. Maybe I can try and be a content creator within this scene as well. But I was really so into NBA at that time. And NBA was just booming and growing so much. I felt like that's probably where I had uh, the best chance to break through. Mm-hmm. Did you ever do any articles that you were, you're like, even like looking back now, you're like, I am really proud of this article. Like, this is the article that I am the most proud of that really represents mm-hmm. me as a person. I don't know if there's just one. There, there were a couple of pieces that I... I was proud of, especially like really analytical pieces. Um, 
that I, I still I think have I have stored somewhere where I kind of combined um, like very good ideas and everything. But th- there's not one I think that kind of defines me. I think I just gr- because I grinded it out and really wrote so many pieces, it was kind of a gradual improvement. And I think I'm more proud of that. Like considering how far I got and how much better my writing got, I, I looked at something I wrote like two two years ago, at, at that time. You know, when I was still yeah. writing actively, I looked at something. Oh. Let's see, this is this I wrote one year ago. This is where I'm at now. And the difference was just shocking. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was obviously very lucky to, I wrote for Bleach Report for a while. I was very lucky to work with some excellent editors who kind of took my writing to the next level. And uh, yeah, so I, I think I was more proud of, of that development rather than just one singular piece. Mm-hmm. So kind of looking at journalism and the reason that I'm kind of like getting some of this stuff out there is actually I recently had Harshaw on the show and he actually was really big into journalism too. Mm-hmm. I was doing writing for uh, Overwatch uh, very briefly, but we kind of had a discussion there about like journalism in esports. Okay, which is kind of something I wanted to ask you because you were into journalism and you were doing uh, tons of writing and you have a journalism degree. Uh what do you think about journalism in esports? I'm not even a limit to Overwatch, but we'll use esports as a whole. Uh, it's it's hard to say. You know, like I haven't really been paying that much much attention because you know the last couple of years I was a pro and then I was a coach, so yeah. I haven't really paid that much attention. I think the general sense that I got was that it was, you know, even now I guess it's not that well developed. I think it's at a much higher level now than it was a couple of years ago, but. I think you still see, I think in, in general, in this industry, everything, all content thrives off clickbait and, yeah. and things like that, which is why I think it's, it's hard to me to look at a lot of journalistic work and go, well, this is really good stuff. Like this is something, this is a good piece of, you know, good piece of journalism. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I think, you know, ESPN obviously does serious stuff and, and, you know, some, stuff that gets posted there i guess it's kind of a little more on the professional side but yeah i think esports in general is just a lot more casual there's not it's not as professional because it's not on national tv you know at least not all the time uh so yeah i think um i think yeah some some catching up to you i think it's just kind of it's just going to grow together as all the esports titles grow i think Okay, because like when I look at esports right now and we look at journalism, it seems like there's almost no way. Like I look at all these different like pub, uh, publications that are out there, and mm-hmm. my like number of questions like, how are you funding this? Like I understand the yeah. companies that are are putting out TMZ clickbait. Like mm-hmm. I, I understand that at least that makes sense to me. Like okay, this is what you're trying to do at least to to uh, bring in revenue. But that is like the number one question I have for anyone who's out there is, and let's say you're someone who has their own platform. So you look at like Richard Lewis for example, um, mm-hmm. who just has his entire own platform and doesn't really need anyone else. He like that makes sense, but that scares me not having editors. But he's writing for Deserto now, so he does. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that would be something that would scare me is like an editor, someone who is really, really important to that whole uh, journalism kind of outlook. And mm-hmm. it seems that the only way to be successful in journalism is if you have your own platform or you work for ESPN. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah, I think you either work for ESPN or you're a freelancer who's kind of built your own brand. And and then again, then you're then it's just you're kind of your own boss. I guess you, there's no one who kind of holds you accountable. You know, mm-hmm. there, I think. You know, there are obviously people who are who follow kind of the journalistic moral code, but I think you always there's always these uh, paths you can take. Like you, you reach a point where 
well, do I, do I post this and potentially hurt someone or like, is, is this good for my brand or this is, is this, and does this follow the moral code? And I think that's the key. If, if you're a true journalist, you're going to try to follow the moral code and not mm-hmm. always just chase after that clickbait, you know, chasing these and things like that. I think that's how you kind of uh, last in the business, unless your persona is different and you're just doing different kind of contents. But then, yeah. then I think you're not a true journalist. Yeah. Yeah, like, that's something I've always said about like uh, Michael. Was it Mike M Y K L? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Is that I, I associate him with like uh, a TMZ uh, Cosmo. He is functionally that he is not a journalist. He is mm-hmm. just he's clickbait that people just want to watch. And, and there's I don't find that yeah. wrong as long as you understand that that's what you're getting. Like you're opening yeah. up Cosmo right now and you're trying to take it serious. Like come on now. Yeah, so. it's content. It's content creation. It's not journalism. Yeah. It's yeah. it's a, it's an entirely different thing. And I think. It, it's kind of blending together and it's hard for people to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's just my take on it. Do you, is that something that scares you right now? Looking at esports, the fact that there isn't a lot of journalists in here like, and really it's ESPN. There's a couple others here and there who are freelancers, mm-hmm. but is that something that really kind of worries you about esports that there is no, there's nothing out there to hold esports really accountable all the time. Yeah, a little bit, because I mean, that's a big thing when you're getting your degree, when you're studying the big thing that sort of the lecturers say is that journalism is there to keep the society accountable, to work in the, um, you know, in, in the interest of the people, right? And um, yeah, so I, I think it, I think there's it's definitely a, a concern, you know, especially like now everything's getting a little more legitimate, like more legitimate, but especially even before like Overwatch League for everything, like there was so much shadiness in the business. And I think that's slowly going away, uh, but there's still so much shadiness, I think, uh, going on behind the scenes. So uh, yeah, I mean, I am, I am a little bit worried and it's, it's difficult to find a solution because again, if you're not getting clicks, because there's no newspapers, because everyone has a very short attention span, they can't sit, sit back and read a long article. They're yeah. going to click on something and look at it for like 10 seconds that's what you have to deal with. And if that's what you have to deal with, well, then you can't fund true journalists who can hold people accountable, who can do real journalists where you can't afford to pay someone who's going to go and do an investigative piece for two months. And maybe there's a risk he comes back with nothing and you've just paid him for two months to do nothing. You know, there's no one who wants to take that risk. There's no one who can take that risk because there's not enough attention still in esports. So yeah, you know, I, I am worried, but I don't really see a great solution is just something that I think sort of our society is devolving into. Yeah. But it, it terrifies me, but I, again, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, there, yeah. I, like I don't have a solution, but it's an interesting thing to kind of bring up and people should maybe care a little bit more about some of those long format pieces that people write all the time. Cause find something useful in there and not yeah. just be a low yeah. IQ human being. Um, so kind of looking at that, you're going through uh, college, you're working uh, very early on doing freelance journalism. Um, you're going through your degree. Esports is starting to pop off. Where does Overwatch come in all this? Mm-hmm. So I moved after university, I moved back to Sweden. I was looking for jobs a little bit and I uh, just got a job in a casino because that was something I was interested in too. Um not casino specifically, but something that I did during my university studies is I played poker at casinos to kind of uh, help pay for bills. It was sort of, instead of getting a part-time job, I just did that. Um, so I was very much into poker. I, that was another thing that I, at the time, was very obsessed by. Like, I was reading books. I was studying film. I was, I, I, I committed so many hours to getting good at poker. And I, again, like, I, I played to try and fund, uh, um, you know, so, so I didn't have to get a job. So I didn't have to get 
you know, bigger loans and things like that. And so Wait, I have moved back to. How, how much money did you make playing poker? Did you did you accomplish that goal to where you actually didn't have to get another job? You were winning enough in poker. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I got some support from um, I got some support from the Swedish government actually, which is a little funny. But again, another perk of living in Sweden, they give you money to study, even though even though I'm studying in the UK, Swedish government is providing providing student support, which I guess pays off because I returned to Sweden and I paid taxes. So in that yeah. sense, it kind of, it works out. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I didn't really make that much again. Like I, w- I was only playing, uh, I didn't have a lot of success online because I was a huge tilter. Uh, and I, but then when I played live, I was, I was decent and I was basically just making enough to kind of cover my rent and made to make sure that I didn't have to, and again, my, my parents helped me a little bit, so I didn't have to take out more loans ex- except for the tuition fees. So, uh, yeah. And, and I mean, and then moving back to Sweden, I was looking for jobs. I couldn't really find anything. Journalism is dead. There's there's nothing, especially since I studied in the UK. My Swedish language isn't really strong enough to work in journalism in Sweden. I had to look abroad. And if you want to go abroad, you have to get a visa. But I'm, I just have a degree. I have no experience. Like, it's impossible, right? So I just went, I went okay, I'm, let me get a job in... Uh, at, at a casino, it's still an environment that I think I'm probably I'm probably gonna enjoy. I enjoyed playing at least, uh, and yeah, I, I went into that job. I worked for maybe just over a year, and I think when I was maybe I must have been like nine months in or ten months in when I first heard about Overwatch that it was gonna come out, and I saw a trailer. And I'm like, wow, this actually looks. A lot like Team Fortress 2. It looks like a lot of the skills that I acquired through five years of playing at the highest level in Team Fortress 2. Maybe I could transition that, even though I haven't touched an FPS FPS title in a while. And even though I'm, you know, at that time maybe 22, 23, mm-hmm. it's wishful thinking. But I thought, well, maybe if, if, if for nothing else, just for fun, because I missed the competition. Uh, the competition, uh, you know, because I had quit poker at that time, so I want to be competitive at something else. Um. So that's kind of where Overwatch came in. I, I saw I saw the, the trailer. I logged into Steam. I reached out to kind of uh, my old TF2 guys, to Harry Hook, to um, um, Taimu, to just basically all, all the guys that I knew from uh, back in the day. And everyone was like, "Yeah, we're we're moving on. Like this this is gonna this is probably gonna be big. Almost all TF2 players are moving on." So I kind of tried to. Uh, I was like, "Okay, if I'm gonna even have a chance to be good at this, I need to get into the beta." Yeah. So I, I was kind of pulling together some players, some potential rosters, writing these long presentations that I was going to send to uh, to artworks, basically saying, "Well, look at this roster." Yeah, and like no, obviously no one's played the game, but everyone thinks it's going to be big. We just want beta keys. Everyone's very accomplished in Team Fortress Two. There's a lot of transferable skills. Please give us beta keys, and then we'll represent you or whatever. And and you just got turned out everywhere. Other other players who kind of and everyone everyone just needed beta keys. So initially, I think. Part of that uh, thing, like I had Harry Hook, I had uh, Taimu, but then eventually they got they they hooked up with like Mitcher, I think, and some other people, so like people pros from other games, and they wanted them, so they gave them beta keys, so they got in, and then I had to kind of rework that roster, and then eventually we found this uh, uh, South African organization uh, called um, Aventus, who had uh, who were able to secure um, beta keys for us and you know we signed like nine month contracts just for beta keys nothing else um and yeah we um that that's how we kind of got into the beta and and i started grinding and eventually 
I knew that working night shifts at a casino completely interrupted with the schedule. I saw that NVS is coming in, like these big teams are coming yeah. in. I'm like, wow, maybe there's maybe there's some potential here. So I quit my job. I got a day job instead. I was working full time with that. I was still freelancing on the side. I was, you know, playing um, scrimming as well. I was sleeping like four hours every day because you know you're working essentially three jobs. Um, and yeah, that's that's how my journey started. I guess. What did your mom and family think about this entire thing? Like uh, video games, and then you 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 leaving uh, journalism. She, I imagine she was like, "You should have been a doctor. You would have had a job." First of all, I could I could so see parents being like, "Man, if you would have been a doctor in Sweden, you would have had a job." Uh, yeah. But you ended up working at a casino, and then you you quit the casino to play video games. Did did you did you let your family know what was kind of going on here? What did they think about this entire thing? Yeah, at the time I was broke, so I had to live at home because I came back from my studies like having having nothing, just having loans. So at the time I I was still living at home, trying to make make back some money, and like trying to play pay off my loans a little bit. Um, and yeah, I mean I was just, the biggest thing was just I was very unhappy at the casino. I hated working night shifts. I just hated that environment. Uh, and I was like, I, I just have to quit. And my mom was very against that. She's like, if you want to pursue this gaming stuff, do that. But you need to have a job at the same time. You know, you have to pay uh, pay bills, right? So be- because of that, I was like, okay, let me try and find a day job. Uh, and I just started working in a reception at a school uh, full time. And uh, could just quit the casino job so that I could work during the days, scrim during the evenings, mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and then basically, the, and then the ride during the nights, and then I have no time to sleep, really. Mm-hmm. So Overwatch is going out. Did you ever think about writing journalism for Overwatch? Like, was that ever a thought of, like, you obviously went the, the pro player path kind of there and into a coach, but you have this journalism background, Overwatch is coming out. Did you ever think about just pursuing a professional career as a journalist in Overwatch? No, not at the time because the game, like, it was still in beta. Yeah. Uh, you know, when 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 we went pro, it was just as the game launched. But yeah. we were obviously there was a lot of interest in our team. We were in talks with NIP, with Luminosity, uh, G two, like a bunch of these teams that were interested in picking up teams. So it was never a case of oh, let me see if I can break through as a journalist because there was nothing to cover. Like the game was just too small. The player base was too small before launch, and I saw. I saw an opportunity because we were breaking through with Ventus. We I remember one one of those ESL cups against uh, Reunited uh, when we had uh, some players standing. We had, we had like uh, and, and the team broke up after after that. We had like Sebosai, Nevix, uh, IDDQD, a bunch of these guys kind of standing in, and we beat Reunited. And I was like, wow, I can maybe go pro in this. Maybe I can secure a pro contract. And it took a while after that to to reach that goal, but it was never about you know. Let's see if I can become a journalist in this field because yeah, there there wasn't enough attention uh, in the game yet. Okay, so you're progressing along as uh, doing this, uh, working during the days and uh, practicing and writing on the side. At what point you say, okay, I'm done with these other two things and I'm just going to focus on video games? Basically, when I signed my uh, contract, well, I had to actually tell the school if I was coming back for next year or not uh, before I signed my contract, but it was looking good. Again, we had a lot of interest. We were pretty much we were either going to sign with NIP or um, Luminosity at the time, you know, before before NIP picked up the fins. And that was basically when, when I did it because it, I saw that I'm going to get a, a contract. It's not going to be hefty, but it's going to be just enough to get, you know, just get by. It's going to move us to a gaming house eventually. Uh, so that was kind of the, 
the time where I'm like, okay, now I have something else. I can pursue this full time. I'm not going to get rich off of this, but I'm going to do, I'm going to accomplish a childhood dream of playing games for a living. That's insane. I'm going to live abroad and play video. I'm going to travel around the world. Fuck the school, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that, that was sort of the, the time I made the transition full time. Okay, so you do that. I want to talk about getting into Misfits. What was it like getting into Misfits? Because you started off as a player for Misfits. Mm-hmm. So what, yeah, what was so, that experience like? Yeah, so uh, obviously with Luminosity, we were kind of um, we were underperforming for a while, and there were a lot of team, a lot of things in that team that I wasn't happy with. So I, you know, a couple of weeks before my departure from Luminosity, I just kind of told the owner that you know we either have to kind of rework the roster because we're just not gelling after all those trades with Rogue and with Misfits, uh, or you have to just remove me because like we were not going to, I can't like lead this team. And then eventually I, I departed a couple of weeks uh, later, you know, the, the teammates felt the same way. They wanted to split. Um, so we end up uh, splitting up. And then within like a week or so, Misfits, um, or, like one, one of the players, con- I think it was Zebo contacted me and said that they were looking for a coach. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe it's something that I can do as well. Because even when I started out, started out playing and I played for like as a pro for maybe two months, I remember I was sitting in on a scrim for another semi-pro team at the time, and I provided some feedback for them. And they were like, holy shit, this is incredible feedback. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm good at this. Maybe I'm good at the teaching part. Maybe I can transition. Maybe this is something I'm going to transition to. And that, that was sort of when I knew that eventually I'm going to transition into that, which is why when I left Luminosity, I posted this thing where I'm pursuing whatever makes sense the most for my career, I'm, I'm going to be down for that. Whether that's playing, whether that's uh, coaching, whether that's kind of a journalism thing or whatever it may be. Uh, but I knew at the time I wouldn't join a team just to join a team. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was there not for the money, but to be a competitor and to win. So at that time, when I departed Luminosity, there was maybe like five teams in the world that I would have joined and played with. I, wouldn't, I didn't want to take a step back and just play for, for a paycheck. Especially since I was already getting a lot of issues with my wrist, um, you know, Phase, Immortals, Misfits, like those were some of the only teams I would have considered joined, uh, joining at the time. So I think Zebo contacted me and he was like, "We were looking for a coach." They had just uh, parted ways with their coach, and I trialed, and immediately uh, all the players on the on the Swedish Misfits were like, "We need you, please come." And then we negotiated a little bit with Misfits, and I I didn't feel like, or, or I mean. We negotiated and I felt like, okay, this this is something I might be willing to uh, pursue. You know, it's it's probably safer than playing. And so the initial plan was that I was going to actually coach that okay. all-Swedish lineup of, of misfits before joining as a player. But right before, or like right around the time when kind of the buyout and everything like that from Lunasi was getting finalized, right around that time, uh, misfits just underperformed and lost in like quarterfinals of this weird weekly cup to a team they should not be losing to. And at that and at that time, they were like, well, maybe instead of joining as a coach, maybe you can join us as Lucio player because we really need more yeah. leadership in that position. So that was kind of how it materialized. I was always going to join as a coach. And then sort of last minute, it kind of, it, it flipped a little bit and uh, they, they wanted to bring me on as a, as a player. Okay, so you're starting off as a player, and you obviously go through that. At what point does do talk start to come up about you becoming a coach again? Uh, well, there wasn't really much talk. Uh, you know, we played a couple of tournaments. We underperformed at Take TV. We went into Contender Season Zero knowing that this is the last chance we have. You know, for six months now, the Swedish 
experiment has failed. If we don't perform at season zero, this lineup is breaking up, and I knew, you know, I, I knew that I'd be gone. Especially since uh, you know Sebo also had experience playing Lucio. He was sort of the team captain. He uh, had won championships playing that role. So I kind of knew that if if we don't perform here, I'm probably going to be out, and maybe I'm going to have to look at at options. So there was a lot of pressure heading into season zero, and uh, you know we started really well. We immediately qualified, uh, finishing top two behind United, who were very very strong. So we had a lot of hopes to at least finish top two. And then potentially maybe make um, the Overwatch League, but um, you know we we did okay in groups, and then we went to the quarters and we just completely choked against Bazooka Puppies. Uh, one of the most depressing moments in my life. And then after that, I kind of knew it was it was over. Then they went for the rebuild. Uh, they kicked me, Rainforce, and Nevix, and. You know, after like a week, they asked you know whether I wanted to kind of trial as a coach as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were trialing another coach who who actually took another. I think um, yeah, I think it's it's public knowledge. So Kirby was also uh, trialing for Misfits at the time to be to coach kind of the new mixed roster with yeah. Zupa, Loggy, and Swoosh. Uh, and I came in and trialed as well. I, I explored my options a little bit. Um, I talked with some other teams, but it, it seemed like Misfits were going to get a spot. So I was like, well, if, if, I co- if I can coach them well, maybe I can move into Overwatch League. This is going to be a nice, smooth transition to the next step of my career. So I trialed as well. And uh, you know, the players wanted to uh, work with me. Uh, so mm-hmm. they, they, they communicated that to the management. And that's how I kind of uh, got on board and uh, started coaching Misfits. Okay, so the way you make it sound is it was almost a very uh, bottom-up approach and not a top-down, right? So, like, if you look at Overwatch League now, a lot of times people are like, okay, the coaches are going to decide things. So it's very mm-hmm. top-down, right? It's management coaches, then players, and players have the lowest amount of say. Um, at this time, it sounds like it was basically up to the players on which coach they wanted in a very uh, bottom-up uh, kind of approach there, um, as well as the fact mm-hmm. that you had actually played with some of these players uh, beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, did that make the dynamic of being a coach Difficult because when I hear it, like the, the like going off in my head, I'm just like conflict of interest, conflict of interest. This would be like mm-hmm. a huge issue of trying to mm-hmm. coach a team that you were uh, friends with. Um, mm-hmm. What was that kind of like for you making that transition? So there's a lot of ways we can we can look at this, and it's I think it's a lengthy discussion that we can have both pre Al yeah. and in Al and uh, sort of the time after that. Uh, to address the first point, I think. Uh, like almost every team was run f- yeah. from bottom up at that time. You know that was at a time where organizations were just they they had one or two star players that they kind of let dictate things. You know, if a player says I'm not gonna, I'm not going to play with this guy anymore, you have to make a move. You you have to kick him. You know, so that that's how it worked pre out. Like that's how it always was. So that that wasn't anything weird. Like the players had to be comfortable with who they worked with, and and even uh, the management when I interviewed with them and kind of the manager uh, slash coach that was working with them on the side as well uh, felt like I was doing doing a better job and um, that's uh, like overall I just uh, I think they kind of cho- chose me because of that now when we, when we started working with Misfits there wasn't that many issues because we just had a really stacked roster for the sort of 
competition in Europe. Like we just we just picked a roster for the meta. Basically, we knew mm-hmm. it was going to be Tracer Genji. Let's pick Vic, one of the best Genjis in the world. Let's pick Logic's probably the best Tracer in Europe. Uh, let's add Swoosh, t- teach him Winston. Uh, add Zupe, probably one of the best top two at least um, uh, flex support in, in the um, uh, in in Europe as well. So. Everything was just going very smoothly. We were performing very well. It wasn't difficult for me to coach the team at all because we were yeah. doing well. And um, I, I didn't really have to do big overhauls or anything. I think the team had pretty decent synergy uh, from the get-go. We had a lot of star power, a lot of clutch, clutch potential. So really, I only had to refine certain things. The meta was also very stale. Uh, so I, I got to work a little more individually with players to try and polish so that a little bit so that they got... Uh, better synergy so with misfits that wasn't really that big of an issue and you know we did very well we went i think was 27 and 2 or something in maps we lost just two maps uh in the entire online stage obviously we had a lot of nerves on on stage in the finals and we ended up losing 4-3 to giganti we underperformed a ton um but beyond that like that period was still relatively successful and i didn't have a that many issues, but also I was I was very raw. I think at, at the time I wouldn't really classify myself as much like the the way I define head coach now. I don't think I was a head coach then. I, I think I was kind of a glorified analyst slash strategic coach. You know that that's that's how I would classify my role at the time. At least how I view uh, of of what a head coach what head coaching duties are today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of looking at that, the Misfits make sense. Okay. Y- you go through, you finish playing against Gigante. Uh, you're looking at the Overwatch League, uh, which I don't know if you had knew or not yet, whether y- you'd be accepted. I'm assuming that you probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And because you guys did well, I'm assuming that they were just like, we're going to keep you as head coach because you did well. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have a choice on the roster at that point, looking at Overwatch League going in? Was it your decision to keep uh, kind of the roster going in? And then if so, uh, what was your decision behind it? What made you go with that, if it was your choice? Yeah, so I was con- consulted during the time, and I felt like um, the roster was strong enough. I think we showed a good result. We choked a little bit on land, but it felt like we could definitely shake it off. So that was kind of a shake it off when we got a lot more games under our belts yeah. um, d- during kind of the league stage. So I-, I was happy with the roster. I think you could still go into the league and do damage with it, but uh, there were some issues that were kind of exposed within the team. Uh, and I did want to add more players, uh, maybe two more players before we headed into the league. And uh, yeah, so, so I was happy with the roster. I did, I did have a say in terms of, you know, they asked me, do, do you think we need to change anything? What do you think? And I was like, yeah, we were doing, everyone's doing, pretty well we showed a good result at eu contenders there's i guess no reason to believe that it's not gonna hold up or that we won't be able to perform there but there are these issues and i think we need to address that by getting these substitute players or add competition in these roles because that's gonna uh, help us get better and we need kind of insurance um uh, over here and so I, I i wanted to get two two more players before the season started, but uh, you know that never really materialized. Okay, what happened with that? Because I've had on a, a few Misfits players now, or previous mm-hmm. Misfits from season one. So I've had on uh, Manitan, uh, Swoosh, and Logics. Okay, so I've mm-hmm. had all three of them on, uh, and they all have different kind of perspectives. And that is an important thing that I'm going to clarify right now, is that their outlook on everything that happened with Misfits is their perspective. And that's kind of why I do this show, and that's important to realize is this is kind of a show based on the individual's perspective 
perspective. Does not mean it is true. Okay, so it's just a very important like, caveat for people out there. Um, so what kind of happened going into season one where you couldn't get these players that you wanted? So I think, and I think this was documented. I think I'm pretty sure the management posted a video of this kind of explaining their thought, admitting that it was the wrong thought process, but it was the thought process nonetheless. Was that you know it was uh, Misfits was an org that was experienced in League of Legends, and they had very yep. bad experience with subs, like having subs. Um, and I, you know, I guess they didn't realize how important it is to have subs in the Overwatch League. Because that wasn't sort of the standard that mm-hmm. uh, the organization was used to in other esports titles, so because of that, uh, I think the mentality was okay. We're just going to head into the league with uh, these guys. Obviously, they're coveted guys. It's gonna it's gonna cost to lock all of them up. Uh, you know, they're they're not going to be cheap, and uh, we're just going to sort of roll with this and then add as the season goes. Like see see how it goes, and then add as the season goes along. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know, from their point of view, you can see the the thought process. Yeah. You know, considering the experiences, and I think that was, uh, in hindsight, obviously a huge, huge error. But at the time, you kind of uh, yeah. understood it, and yeah, you know, I, 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 I was a little, yeah, yeah, you know, I was a little disappointed because I really wanted like to add the two specific players uh, at the time, but you know, it, it it didn't happen. I was like, okay, that that that's fine. You know, I think we can go into the season and we can probably do damage with with this roster and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So another question that I have for you then, did you ever think about adding more staff? Because you, you mentioned the League of Legends and they mm-hmm. obviously, uh, Misfits is a fairly big brand in the LEC now. Um, mm-hmm. And staff, I fully agree. I can I get the, the logic behind the players, right? Like in League of Legends, we don't use subs. The way that the game is based, subs aren't, I don't think, as useful. You see you see them starting to become more useful now, kind of. Um, but at, at the time, I could totally get that kind of logic. But one of the logics I cannot grasp to, like to this day is staffing because the League of Legends team definitely has more than one coach um, and they know for a fact that having more staff is useful for League of Legends. What happened on the staffing aspect? Because you guys didn't pull more staff in till later on in the season and even when you pulled Koreans in, it was uh, from, from some of the people we've had on the show, it was like three or four weeks later before you even got a translator. So explain to me the staffing aspect. Mm-hmm. So maybe I, I would probably guess that it might have been the same, like maybe, maybe the org was suffering from like the same complacency, where that kind of carries over from the roster decisions and the fact that we performed very well. And yep. well, we have a winning formula here. Why would why do we need to add to it before mm-hmm. there's a need to it? And, you know, uh, we have a strong head coach. He can uh, do a lot of things. So I don't think maybe you know it, it's hard it's, at that time. It's also hard to find staff like people who are good at their yep. job. Uh, so I suppose that was kind of the the mentality. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure, and, and I didn't really push that hard for it either. I, okay. I didn't understand. I, I personally didn't understand how much work it would be. So it wasn't something where I was like, I need an assistant. I need this and that because I didn't know what it required to be in the Overwatch League. I think no one really did, and that's why you see. I think even a team like Envious, you know, they were also severely understaffed. I think they. I'm pretty sure they also went into the season with just Kai Kai or maybe like one analyst on the side, but I'm pretty sure at the beginning of the season, Kai Kai was also kind of uh, on his own. And I think if that's the case, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's the case, I think that, that was, that's also reflected in the same mentality where NVS was like, well, we just absolutely rolled through NA contenders. We are Apex champions. We did it with this structure. Let's just trust this structure. Let's not think about how we can get ahead of problems. Let's not think about how we can uh, 
build on it. You know, how do how do we maintain this? Okay, we're at the top now, but how do we make sure that we get ahead of problems? And I think I think maybe Envy has suffered a little bit from that, and I think certainly uh, Misfits uh, suffered a little from 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 that complacency, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, I don't remember offhand. I'm trying to like remember back, like who did I actually talk to in Dallas at the time? Because like mm-hmm. I was obviously with Gladiators. Um, I feel like they did, but they might have added him on stage two. It might have been stage mm-hmm. two when they yeah. added people people yeah. in. Um, yeah, so, I'm pretty sure that was the case. Yeah. Uh, so kind of uh, going back in and looking at uh, season one mayhem, we've kind of got a chance to talk about uh, like the different staffing going into it um, and how. Very realistically, um, you don't want to break something that's working, right? Like going into it, you were like, the formula is working. Yeah. Um, there's no reason to change anything. So, which is, I think is a very reasonable thing. No one knew what they were really getting into, I think, starting uh, season one of Overwatch League. Um, at least at the very start. Okay, so the the first stage happens. Okay, and... I would say that at that point, we're starting to notice some things that are uh, definitely unique to Overwatch League and the fact that you have two games a week and you're practicing six days a week and people are doing two to three blocks a day on top of like Vaudreuil or individual practice. Um, I can't imagine you being the only coach after that first month and being like, oh shit, I could do this another fucking uh <laughs> five state or uh, three stages along with playoffs okay i can't i can't imagine that goes to your head unless you were suffering from some sort of uh kind of issue starting off right there so what was after stage one um things are not going uh the greatest what are your thoughts going into it so yeah like stage stage one was i think it can just kind of set the tone for the entire season um you know i think like what what other players on your show have already touched on was that we had to kind of commute, yeah, quite a bit to the uh, to the venue. So we had a like very long work days. Uh, I think as far as our onstage play, I think we suffered from a lot of the same issues that we did during the LAN, yeah. um, you know, uh, of Contenders uh, season one. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sort of the issues that kind of manifested themselves on the stage. And I think that we slowly, slowly worked off by the sort of towards the end of stage two when we started getting some better results. Uh, you know, when we beat Shock, when we beat Valiant, when we almost beat Soul, when we, I think, beat Dallas. We, we had a, a strong showing there, but it took a long time to build up to that. And I think mostly that was because, you know, these, these issues that um, I already saw that we were probably going to have issues with even before the league started, it really manifested themselves. And then also, uh, you know, we, we like solving things just took way too long. Like I, I went into Overwatch League with this plan, like I'm going to do this and that and, and everything's going to be like this. I'm going to uh, make sure that like every single week or at least bi-weekly, I'm going to be talking with every single player and making sure, uh, you know, right before the season I had, I, I talked with every single player. I made sure everyone had personal goals. I uh, talk, you know, like sort of having an all-encompassing conversation. Yeah. And I want, and my goal was, okay, I'm going to have that on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis at least. And I had all of these plans set out, right? And then we go into the season and I'm like, holy shit, there's so much, like we're commuting. First of all, the days are so long. There's two games every week, which is um, incredibly, incredibly hard to prepare for because you have to study so much film. You have to prepare your team strategically you have to make sure everyone's um you know everyone's kind of um 
in, in the right mindset. Uh, everyone's uh, you know up, up to snuff in, in that regard. So I I think then I realized okay we're we're going to be in trouble. Like it's going to be so hard to solve all of these uh, issues. And to me personally, and again I look at at, at that time and I could say well we we lost because or we were losing because like our, we had we didn't really have any management uh or or we didn't um you know we, we didn't have enough resources we were under seven yeah like i could i could point at that but like when i look back at that time i think one of the biggest um not regrets but something that i i learned from and that i think i could have changed that maybe wouldn't have changed the results too much but i think could have helped was that um I didn't really understand the duties of a head coach in terms of the way I see it now. A head coach has to look at the 40 problems that every single team has, inevitably has at any given time, isolate two or three most important ones, solve those first and put everything else to the side. Mm -hmm. If you have enough staff, you can maybe do five problems at the same time and you can kind of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A delegate for, for them to solve other things. But when I was in that position, instead of, because I was trying to do everything, I was trying to be the team psychologist, the strategist, the motivator, the psychologist, the scout, I should have realized that already at that time, uh, because the same issues were kind of manifesting themselves from, from, um, from contenders, the players were kind of losing trust in each other. Mm-hmm. And if I was a good enough head coach at that time, I would have realized that, okay, it does not matter how well I prepare my team strategically. It doesn't matter how good my scattering reports are, how well we know the widow yeah. positions, how well we know exactly what compositions each team is playing. If there's no trust in the team, mm-hmm. you know, and I should have, I should have worked with players a little more one-on-one, I think, and put that to the side. And okay, we're not going to be optimally prepared. It's impossible to be optimally prepared. Yeah. I should have, I should have accepted that fact a lot earlier and kind of isolated the most important issues. And instead, I think what I did was I spread myself super thin. I tried to cover all of those bases on my own. And I, as a result, I think I, I didn't really do a great job in, in any of them. You know? Yeah, and I, uh, I, I think that's, that takes a lot of uh, courage to be able to accept like, the responsibility that this is there. Um, I have a – looking on the outside and having worked with gladiators, um, I do agree with your kind of your analogy that you cannot fix every single problem and you kind of need to delegate and that there's probably certain positions that are going to fix certain problems. Yeah. Um, so like obviously like mentality stuff was something that I was aware of and like gladiators knew any sort of mentality problems way beforehand, which is super helpful. Like yeah. knowing this could be an issue four months out is uh, kind of a big deal. Um, yeah. but kind of, I, I do think that, but I think it's kind of, I have a hard time looking at you and being like, it, it was your responsibility. You were, I, it, from the outside, it kind of looks like you were almost set up for failure. Um, and like, that's what it kind of looks like being on the outside is that maybe you could have asked for things or maybe they could have provided things and maybe it wouldn't have changed things, but it sure as hell wasn't like you were given the, the easiest load to carry the entire time. And, uh, coming to like the results that we see later on that we're going to kind of get into. And I would like to discuss, um, it seems like you were trying to carry the weight of the world on yourself. That might've been slightly unrealistic. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, f- for sure. I mean, I, I tried to to do that, and again, that's something I had to learn the hard way. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there there was a question there. So I guess there's nothing I can 
I, yeah. I, I can I can really answer or, or, or babble yeah. about. But yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, you know, you're right. It's I, I did feel like I had to solve everything. I was I was in charge of everything. But at the same time, ever since then, like because you know, I I got a lot of shit. I got a lot of hate. I, I don't think there's any value from a personal development yep. perspective for me to put any more shit on mayhem and say. Yep. Well, they put me in a yeah. Maybe I wasn't in. I didn't have the same resources as other teams did. But like I said, if I was better equipped or if I was a better yep. head coach at that time, maybe I could have. Maybe it would have only changed like five percent. Made us five percent better. But maybe that five percent is enough to kind of capture a little bit of momentum. And instead of mm-hmm. us like going down the drain for the entirety of stage one, maybe we get get that wave of momentum yep. and we get a couple of wins. And the season looks completely different, right? And I think from a personal development perspective, it's like. It's just super unhealthy to go. Well, I, I just had a shit. I was yeah. the shit he had. There was nothing I could do about it, you know. So I, I choose to view it as what could I have done better, I, you know. And I think I failed in a lot of a lot of fronts, and I, I didn't have the tools, uh, you know, personally. I didn't hadn't developed the skills necessary to handle those things. Uh, and I think the only way you can learn to handle those things is through go, going through those things. So. Yeah, maybe maybe the uh, the situation wasn't optimal, but I kind of you know I, I choose to look at it as an incredible lesson because I grew so much trying to kind of wear so many hats at yeah, the same time. I, I think, I think that's a totally fair as like assessment. Like you will not grow unless you do take uh, responsibility for that. I think that that is totally a hundred percent fair. Um, so kind of looking at, as the stage progresses, you get through stage one. Uh, do you think about asking or bringing up, Hey, we need more staff like immediately. Yeah. So we, I was already uh, asking for, players and and staff very very early on in stage one uh and again another thing that you don't know i guess or don't understand as an organization moving into season one is that it takes time to get the paperwork done it takes time to get visas it takes time to do interviews all of these things take a lot of time you know and um you know so we um we were we started working on it pretty early on, but it just takes so much time to get, get the visas, which is why you know Sapis arrived so late, which is why, and you know the Koreans arrived so late. Why everything took such a long time, you know. So I think that's just again an, another lesson that, in, in in hindsight, maybe you should have foreseen, but you know you didn't. You, you probably didn't expect things to go that badly that early, and that you would need to immediately intercept and like. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try and buy or, or, or look in, in the market for solutions and yeah so okay so you're looking early on you're going through stage one stage two goes through you get through stage two how are you feeling at the end of stage two because you did you you worked part of the way into stage three um but mm-hmm. not a whole ton i think like two or three weeks um yeah. into stage three uh which i guess considering the stage is like five weeks long it's quite yeah. a long time um no. but you're going through stage two how are you feeling by the end of stage two so I think right around the middle of stage two or maybe early stage two, because at, at that time I was doing like, like I didn't have any days off because during the days off I was just preparing for, yeah. uh, preparing like scan reports. So I was doing like 12 to 14 hour days, like almost every day without days off uh, through like one and a half stages or even more than that. Cause we had a lot of time, I guess, preparing for, you know, during the preseason and things like that. Uh, so by mid stage two, and definitely by end of stage two, I was just extremely burnt out. I mm-hmm. started getting these uh, really worrying symptoms where, while I was sitting, kind of the entire left side of my body would just go numb. 
Okay. Like the, the best way I could explain um, the feeling was if someone took like hot water and poured it under your shirt and the water was like running down uh, the, the side of your body, that's kind of what it felt like. So anytime I, I got the symptoms, I was like, what did someone pour water on me? Uh, and I, I was getting that like several times a day. It, it, it was it was coming and going. And uh, because I had some uh, uh, issues with my heart when I was a little younger, when I was in, in my teens, it was obviously very worrying. Uh, but it did feel like a neurological uh, symptom. So, you know, we I, I went to a lot of doctors. I We, we did a lot of tests, tested me for uh, for everything. And, you know, the conclusion, I guess, the doctor came to was just, it was just extreme burnout, you know, and it was, he, he, he couldn't really, because sort of my values were pretty good in terms of like my blood work and all of that stuff. So he couldn't find something that was yeah. wrong with me structurally. So he kind of just uh, chalked it up to me being extremely, extremely burnt out. Um, but obviously at that time I didn't have the luxury to really take a break. I think I started getting those symptoms even before, uh, Ryder came on or anyone really uh, came on to help. And, uh, you know, I, I just had to kind of push through it, but obviously that was, you know, that it didn't really help my mental health either because I was constantly worried about that too, on top of trying to fix all the things, uh, that were going yeah. on with the team as well. Okay. What happened as a kid with your heart? You never mentioned that earlier. Uh, well, it wasn't anything big. It was just when I was a kid, I was uh, abusing energy drinks. I was drinking like three or four every day. And then for like a year, I had these heartaches where I couldn't breathe. Like I couldn't mm -hmm. breathe in at all. Uh, or I would get this really, really sharp pain in my chest. Yeah. And that subsided eventually, but it took like a year or something. So because I had that, I thought, well, maybe this is the stress is causing that to come back or something, even though it's a completely different symptom. I thought maybe, maybe that's coming back to haunt me, you know, what I, what I did as a teenager. So yeah, that was, that was kind of the okay. thing. So you go into stage three, you're working along. Um, I don't think you had declared that you were leaving yet, that you were stepping down. Um, you get part through what happens that makes you say, okay, I'm stepping down. Mm. So before I left, um, you know, obviously the management was very well aware of my uh, sort of physical and mental condition because they were taking me to work uh, to, to to get these these tests tests done. Um, and even before, like probably like even a month up to a month before um, before I left, or maybe like three or four weeks before I left, they were saying, you know, if you need to take a break, take a break. You know, like it's. Mm -hmm. We, we 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 see so much potential in you. We want to work with you moving forward, and we don't want you to just burn out and not, um, and, and you know, and just, just kind of fizzle out, you know. Uh, so, which I appreciated very much, you know, that the management gave me that yeah option, like even like, like a month before I left. But I didn't feel like it was an option. Like to me, with my mentality, I did, I genuinely didn't feel like that was even an option. Like no way, no way, I'm leaving my guys when we're doing so poorly i have to stay i have to stick through it that's the mentality i've had the entirety of my life like grinding in journalism grinding in every single thing that i did up to up till this point like that's not how i got here by just kind of leaving when when the go, when the going is tough and just because i feel bad and and i think i think it is a very it's healthy to a point where it helps you achieve goals it helps you this hyper competitiveness helps you get far but it's if you don't consider your health then you know, you're not going to have a career anyway. Like it's very easy to run yourself into the ground. And that was sort of what I was doing. So I kind of politely declined. Uh, but then, you know, by the time I left, sort of, sort of the day that I left, I, 
that, that's when I just sort of hit a wall. Like I was already operating maybe at like 20% of my capability because I was kind of a walking zombie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there were things that were going on in, in the team that maybe triggered um, me, like me just kind of breaking down. But mostly it's not one single event that led to it. It's just like the accumulation of everything, the stress, the uh the the health uh, the health condition like the, those those worrying symptoms um you know trying to figure out how to in- incorporate all the new players the the change in culture within the team because now you're mixing your roster uh like all, all of these added pro- like it, it is just problems just add up and add up uh, so it wasn't like one thing that triggered it but yeah i i just kind of as i was operating at 20% efficiency i, f- I felt like i wasn't bringing what I could to the team. I felt like I was kind of letting the team down as well, which is like a horrible feeling because to, to me, I felt like I was doing everything. I was sacrificing everything. I was like, you know, almost physically like dying and we were still underperforming and I felt like I wasn't doing enough. And I think if you put that kind of mental strain on yourself, like you're just going to break. Eventually something's going to trigger it and you're just going to break. And that's, I think what, what happened when I, when I left, you know, I, I just, I felt like that's it. Like I feel like I have nothing anymore. Like I have nothing to give, um, you know. And it was it was super hard to. And, and it wasn't something that I thought about a long time. It was I just kind of realized, okay, I, I I can't I can't do this because if I continue for the rest of the season, I know with full certainty I'm going to be retired after this year. Um, so you know, I I I talked with um. John, the president of the team, you know, again, they were very supportive as they were yeah. uh, e- even a month earlier. Uh, you know, I, I talked with Ryder, you know, I, I really apologized because I hated leaving him in that type of a position. Uh, so, yeah, I it, it was just really, really rough. And then telling the players, you know, I, I just couldn't, I, I, I kind of, I wanted to tell them, I didn't, just didn't want to disappear, you know, I wanted to tell them what, what was going on. Um, so yeah, I, I, I kind of, you know, told them and it, that was really heartbreaking because I felt the support of the players as well, at least from, from what they said and what, what the body, like reading the body language in the room at the time when I told them, it, it did feel like they genuinely, uh, supported me and, and, and like, you know, they enjoyed working with me and, uh, that just kind of broke my heart even more, you know, because I felt like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving these guys when when I really shouldn't, but at the same time, I just, you know, like it, 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 it was, that, that was almost a thing that added, added to the, to the stress and the strain. The fact that yeah. it, it just yeah. goes against everything. It, it just goes against my mentality and who I am, mm-hmm. and, you know, at, at the core, you know, in terms of like never giving up and, and things like that. And it felt like I was almost giving up, even though, you know, from, from talking with, with people, like I had rationalized it. Yeah. Like this is the right decision. I know this is the right decision. I have to make this decision for myself, but it just felt so, so shitty making that decision nonetheless. Yeah. I, I've, like I said, I've had three, three of your players kind of go on the show. And what I, what I will say about them is all of them have said that you are uh, a good coach. There, there have been criticisms, um, from uh, different aspects and different looks. And I, I know that, uh, one of the players said that, uh, swoosh specifically was like, you know what? It feels like he, he, he really let us down. Like he really left and it was mm-hmm. for swoosh specifically. It was very out of the blue. It was very unexpected, uh, for him. Like, and that's his perspective, obviously. And I think that that's fair. Um, like one minute you were there and one minute you just kind of had left and he felt yeah. like we're, we're all suffering here. And it, I don't know if you've yeah. 
like how much like one of the things that he talked about is actually like during the season one of his friends had died um mm. that he was really close to um and that like his whole the, he was not winning and stuff and then you left and it was almost like a combination of those things um on him specifically that was kind of like really hard yeah. um and he had felt he you were actually one of the people he recommended on the show too which is kind of funny mm-hmm. he's like what was his perspective telling his side of the story and i think that that's not something that anyone can do very easily i don't think yeah. i don't think like making that decision wasn't something like one day you're like okay uh this yeah. is this is easy dis- decision and i imagine that it kind of it must have stuck stuck with you weeks after like watching every yeah. single game you're like i should be there helping support these yeah. kids um and like Props to you for that decision, because I, I do think it was the best thing probably for you to do. Um, I don't think it's an easy decision, and I think that it's probably one of those decisions where even looking back now, you're like, is there any way I could have made it so I could have stayed? Like, I, I can't imagine that you don't have that mm. thought in your head. Um, so kind of looking at it, uh, moving forward, you decide to to take this break and going through. I actually wanted to ask you a question, because Ryder has come up a couple times with a couple mm. of your players. What was the process of getting Ryder in? Uh, so we were looking at um, Sia player, and uh, we wanted to obviously sign him. And we were looking yeah. to add another main tank. We were looking to expand the roster, and we felt like if we're bringing in Koreans, we need a kind of a Korean presence in the coaching room as well. So you know they were all sort of part of the same team. So we kind of took them, uh, or like the organization took them uh, as a package. You know, I, w- I was very focused on the team. I wasn't really yeah. focused on doing interviews or anything like that. So uh, the organization obviously. Uh, hired him. The, the the one the one player that I really really wanted that I pushed for was um, Sia player. You know, because at that time I didn't have time to scout, so I didn't really know who the best talents are. But I knew how good Sia player was, and I really wanted Sia player on the team. And then you just kind of felt okay, he's going to come. We want to make him comfortable. Let's bring in kind of the support staff that they had there. Meta Athena at that time was probably the best team in uh, Korea. We're one yeah. of the top two, top three teams. Uh, so obviously they had a very solid foundation there. We're like, okay, let's let's bring in. Obviously Vol'jin also left and went to Dallas. So that team kind of got picked apart because they were so good. Uh, and yeah, like that's that's sort of how Ryder came in. And I think uh, he, he did help me in the sense that you know I could maybe. Um, well, he helped me in, in the sense that I had someone else to kind of bounce yeah. ideas off, which was important. But at the same time, that was also very very difficult because his English wasn't good. And through my entire stay until I left, we didn't have a translator. Uh, so it was still very difficult for me to communicate with him. Uh, and it, it, I was also in a position where, again, as a head coach, an, another situation that I had never experienced was working within a staff and kind of, uh, uh, you know, handing out responsibilities. Yeah. So it, it was difficult because I was used to doing everything. So I'm like, I wasn't very good at identifying, I guess, strengths and like, you can do this for me, you can do this for me, I'm going to take care of this. So maybe some of the stuff that we did like overlapped a little bit. I wanted him him to come into into the team and gain some respect. So I I had him also contribute with some of the reviews while I did other stuff. And you know, obviously that was hard because again the of the um, language barriers. So that was sort of uh, uh, how how Ryder came in in season one. Okay. You mentioned respect there. And one of the things that I kind of gotten from some of the other players where I had on here is as the season went along, as things got worse and worse, and you would, you even touched on it yourself, them losing trust in each other. Um, but I had also heard that they had kind of lost trust from you a little bit, that people weren't listening, which isn't uncommon when things aren't going well. Um, is that something that you saw happening in front of you? Was that something that you noticed as well? Or from your perspective, was everything fine? So I guess this goes back to the point of, you know, coaching your former 
teammates, right? And I think that was definitely part of the issue. I think, again, once things started going poorly and the core of the roster is basically players who have been your peers, you know, you were kicked from the team and they stayed. So in a sense, when you're in their situation, you can convince yourself, okay, you know, I, I, I know better. We're not doing well. Let's, let's try this instead. But now the hierarchy has changed and it's very difficult. It's difficult for everyone. It's very difficult for the players to to respect that and just change their mindset. It's difficult for the coach as well because you care for those players as well, having played side to side and having like a different relationship with them. And I think it was, yeah, I think it was difficult on on everyone. And it's it's hard. It's harder for me to make decisions because I can, you know, I'm, I'm good at reading into body language. I can see when I say something that we're going to do this, and even though players might do it i can read certain players' body language and they're they're like they're not buying in and if they're not buying in then it means we're just gonna try it it's not gonna work and then we're gonna move on to another thing without giving this an honest shot and uh, i I do think you know that was that was part of the problem i think there were a lot of other problems but you know it definitely made my job a lot harder to work with players who i had played with for a really really long time and known for a really really long time uh, it was hard for me to sever like that relationship and separate it, and, and I think it's kind of impossible. I think I think that there's two things you can do: you either sever the professional relationship, which means you uh, you know you you just split one one party leaves and one stays, or you sever the friendship, which is yeah. uh, you know w- while you're in a team, you do that, and that kind of has implications on the results as well, because now you know, where do I stand? Like, it, it, it's just kind of an impossible conundrum, I think, to navigate around almost. Uh, or, or maybe it's not. Maybe you can if both both parties are, uh, like, really receptive to it. They're very mature and they accept that. But I think in esports, uh, everyone's young. No one's really experienced these things. I don't think you can do that. And especially when you're not dealing with just one person, you're dealing with a good chunk of the uh, of the team. And, and I didn't really feel like, it was like the majority of the team doesn't trust me. Like no one trusts me and no one does what I say. I, I don't, I don't really think that I, I still think I, I had uh, an impact on a lot of players. I think a lot of players kind of improved individually in certain aspects of their games. I didn't feel like it was kind of a mutiny where I, I had lost the locker room. I think I very much still had the locker room before I left, but I do, I do see, uh, you know, what you mentioned in terms of like, it was very hard. It was much, much harder for me to make decisions. And maybe I didn't make the right decisions every single time because I was taking other factors in consideration rather than just hundred percent. What's the best for the team. I was also thinking, okay, this is the best for the team, but this is going to have this type of an impact on this player. And then if that has that impact on that player, then that's going to lead to this type of an effect here. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking, far ahead because I had already experienced, okay, this is how, how it's going to be like if we make this, this, this decision. He knows it's, uh, um, I'm, I'm talking a little bit in circles, but that's kind of, I, I guess you can kind of get the gist of um, the uh, the issues and how, how difficult it is. Uh, and, no, and that's something I, I realized. Like, it's not something, like, I, I can't really do a great job uh, anymore. I, 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 can, I can do a good job, but I can't do the best job possible with 
perhaps those guys, you know? Yeah. And like, if I would have been brought, like, let's say that you had brought me in partway through your season, I would have actually said a very similar thing that, Hey, listen, one of these two things needs to happen. They either need to yeah. sever their, their friendship and you need to put something to kind of replace that, which that's kind of what a performance coach does is they take that more, mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to you and work through your problems. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a different type of relationship. It's not just, yeah. uh, like a, a coach, a lot of times very much, you're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. Um, normally put in a more respectful manner that is a lot more convincing. Um, mm-hmm. But like those relationships are very, very different. So you were almost taking on dual roles that you shouldn't have had to do, which is understandable. Like that being in that situation, there is no good answer. Cause I think that's mm-hmm. the truth. There really is no good answer yeah. for season one mayhem. Like there's no easy, yeah. easy answer in order to solve all yeah. of your problems going in there. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, just, just, to, just to add to that real quick, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't want to. I, I suppose we're going to get to season two, so I'm not going to talk about it too much. But I think uh, you know w- w- what you're saying as well. I think it's something that everyone has to learn. I think we, we go out of that experience and we're all better for it because we we have learned this. We have we understand why it doesn't work. We understand um, you know wh- why it didn't work out. And you know, at, at least for myself, I know that I grew so much from that experience because I went in season two with a completely different mindset, you know, and again, I listened to the interview you had with Swoosh and he said like, sort of when I came back after the season to coach the academy guys and try and build out our academy over the summer, uh, he said, I came back like a little colder and yep. you know, that I, that I probably reflected on these things. And I, and I did like when I was back home, I reflected, I knew that that's hundred percent of the conclusion I came to as well. Like I can't coach my, my former teammates or like certain or certain former teammates because it's, it's just too difficult on, on all of us and it, it like the team suffers because of it and it is just not a functional environment which is why i changed my uh coaching style i wouldn't say completely but i changed it by a lot heading into the summer that i kind of exper- I experimented with a different uh, coaching style with the academy like when, when i try to help uh, build, build out the academy and coach those guys through the summer and help them develop help the organization kind of develop pieces for the future i i experimented with that style and it's something i went uh, into the next season with as well. And I think, uh, again, what, what we said, I think head coaching is a lot about isolating problems and knowing which problems to tackle first. And after that, a lot of it is about conversations, like sitting down with a player who has an issue uh, and being able to solve that, even if they're in an agitated state, even if they're, they don't see reason, having the ability to sit, sit down with a player and make him see reason, make him buy into what's right for the team is uh, I think one of the most important things for for a head coach and it's something that I I think I probably shied away from a little bit because of this dynamic in in season 1 and something that I think you know obviously we didn't have good results in season 2 again we're probably going to get to that I don't want to dive in too much into that but something that I am sort of proud of and I think that I did a good job on compared to uh, the first season is these conversations putting out fires kind of immediately noticing when a problem is occurring, bringing a player in and having that tough conversation, I think. And again, it was super, super tough, even though I wasn't a friend of these players, you know? And if you're a friend, then that conversation just becomes, like, it becomes almost impossible. 
uh, to do, I think. So, yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. So kind of looking at, that does bring us into like season two. Um, you you mentioned you brought it, you you had came in with this new sort of mindset, which you did, Sushi even mentioned, is like he was a different person when, he, when I saw him the next time, which I think is good. Okay, I think that, that is, it was something that was necessary going into this. So yeah. you, you go in and you build out uh, the Academy roster, which did very well. Um, and which kind of brings me, you had this mindset going into the Academy. Um, you're starting to put together the roster for season two for mayhem mm-hmm. is your thought process the same because like everyone who like like yiska volumail a bunch of other analysts and people out there who do writing have pretty much said that they were very confused with the season two roster so what was your thinking going into the season two roster um and building that out mm-hmm. so we Obviously, having uh, sort of had a core, like building on a core, uh, a full team from the first season, we had bad experiences with that. So we kind of just wanted to pick uh, players we felt were talented and throw mm-hmm. together a team. Uh, and in hindsight, like almost all teams heading into the season, out of all expansion teams, like almost everyone picked up cores and then built pieces around them. And that's how it, they were successful. I think Boston is kind of the only team that kind of went for a rebuild, picked pieces from everywhere and made that successful. But I think that speaks more to like how good they were at scouting and uh, the coaches that they have. I think they have exceptional uh, co- coaching staff and, and, and good leadership and all that, uh, which is why I think they can make it work. Uh, so we, we went to the season also, or the, in the off season, basically just looking, okay, let's try and find the best player in each position who is also attainable. Because again, when you're scrapping an entire roster heading into a new season, you're dealing with multiple issues. You're dealing uh, with obviously a financial issue in terms of you have to sign entirely a new roster. You're competing with eight expansion teams for the same players who, and and those eight teams are going to have a one month uh, period when they can sign players and you can't. Yep. So, you had to be kind of realistic and so like certain players may, were maybe not attainable. They were going to be too expensive because you, you can't throw out three or 400 K on a bunch of different stars unless you're, you know, Vancouver. They, that's pretty much what they did. They invested that money. They're winning. Yeah. You know, London kind of did that in season one, picking up two championship rosters. They picked uh, the, the best out of them and they won. Uh, but unless you're willing to make an investment of several million, you're left to kind of maneuver around and say, okay, maybe this is where you spend a lot of money here. Here we can maybe spend a little less and uh, can we get this guy or this is, is this guy going to be snapped up before even uh, the, um, before we even have a chance to kind of uh, pursue him or uh, be in that conversation. If this is a guy that three teams are going to be interested in, they're going to be in a, in a bidding war for, then we can't really get him. Even if we, Communicate to, communicate to him that we we're, we might be interested and we might might give you an offer after the sort of moratorium or whatever you might you want to call it is lifted. Yeah. Uh, so you're you're battling obviously through a lot of um, uh, you know a lot of uh, hurdles and you know we we did we did trials we looked at a bunch of players and I think we we kind of um, built out. I think the biggest issue was we didn't really have anyone scouting. I think. It, it took a real long time for our management to uh, get to where it is now. I think now now the management is pretty well equipped in terms of the manpower, but we started so poorly in, in terms of like where our management was that we didn't have enough 
by the time off season rolled around, because when when the season started, we you know I, I think kind of swoosh mentioned that as well. Like we, we didn't really have a lot of management. Eventually, Matt came in, and he is yeah. like a terrific person, an incredible manager, uh, one of the best managers I've ever worked with, one of the best people I've ever worked with. But at the beginning, he was kind of a part time. He was still studying, so he was a part time manager. He was with us like maybe twice a day, and beyond that, like we didn't have that much presence in terms of like having a general manager. And I, I guess to kind of share an anecdote. Uh, and I'm not digressing a little bit, but I guess to kind of share an, an a- anecdote. Um, uh, you, you know how there was this platform where every team would be able to access stats yeah. and overheads, right? Which yes. really helps yes. when you're, which really helps when you're scouting and preparing for games, right? You're seeing, you're seeing the overhead, you're seeing where everyone's rolling out and positions. It's much easier to dissect and prepare uh, for a team looking at that footage rather than trying to look through the uh, tournament feed. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't find out that we had access to that until maybe stage three. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because that's pretty bad. I, because obviously I wasn't included in the yeah. emails or anything. That's like those emails go to management, but I, d- I didn't find out. I find out from another team and then I asked and then, oh yeah, there's this email from a couple of months ago, you know? So that's, that's kind of where we started. And I think... Obviously, during uh, when the offseason started, we were building up our staff. But I think you know Matt was still kind of a little bit on on his own. You know, we had Albert helping. We we had some people, but we didn't really have anyone scouting during the offseason. We didn't have anyone really paying attention to contenders and going like, "This is the guy we should pursue." So our I think our scouting really lacked in, in that sense because like I was in charge basically of because I built our academy team i was kind of in charge of the european scene i trialed every everyone in europe and i gave kind of my opinions on who might be good who might uh, uh, not be that good and then i obviously had a bit of a i also trialed in north america so those are the regions where i kind of knew where some of the talents uh, might be and but in korea i had absolutely korea and china like i had no idea about any talents there because obviously i had no time to ever watch any of that and writer kind of handled that and he kind of isolated like these are attainable targets like this guy is probably going to be more uh, too expensive but these are potential targets as well Uh, and i think that's really not something you should put on coaches i think you need staff dedicated to prepare scouting to to the point where you're not relying on just a coach's uh knowledge in terms of the guys you look at because i think out of the guys we looked at we liked the players that we looked at um and but maybe we didn't look at the right guys you know yeah Maybe that's part of the issue. I think another issue is that we had every intention to be a mixed roster from the get-go. We, we kind of went at like half and half, but at the end we were like, okay, let's just pick the guys we think are the best, but we are going to be a mixed roster. We are going to speak English. So another important thing that we were looking in players was how good is this player's English? Yeah, Because we're not only looking at how skilled are you. Like if, if, if say this player is here, but he has really good English, and this player is here, but he doesn't speak a lick of English. Theoretically, in a vacuum, this guy is a better pickup. Maybe he has a higher upside, but he's not going to fit in what we're yeah. what, what we've decided to build. Um, so I think sort of the fact that we didn't have, I think, good enough scouting, or maybe some of the guys were going to be too expensive, and um, because I think maybe we we should have just committed either, okay, have maybe two Koreans and then the rest Western or just go full Korean. I think we should have gone one way or the other in hindsight. Uh, I think that kind of held us back and why, um, you know, the, 
the roster, I guess, ultimately didn't perform because we went, we ended up with a roster with major, uh, that is majorly Korean with only essentially one Western player in the starting lineup, only one projected player in, in a Western lineup. And we force them to, or we, or we get them to speak English, which is very unfair on the Western player. It's super hard for him. It's very unfair for the Korean guys as well because it's so, so difficult, right? Yeah. Uh, so I think we, you know, I think, I think there were a lot of mistakes in, in, in the approach, both from, you know, the, the way we did the scouting and kind of the philosophy through which we uh, ended up building the team. Mm-hmm. So you're put in a very unique situation because it, it, you might have had going in it like, oh, we're going to do like a, a split roster. And it ended up not like it was it was split in a very odd way that I have not really seen work, which is mostly Koreans and then two Western mm-hmm. players, yeah. um, which at that point you had like first thought is obviously why have a Western coach who can't communicate? Cause people mm-hmm. do not seem to understand how hard it is to work through language barriers. Yeah. It is hard. It slows yeah. everything down significantly. Yeah. Like any, like if mm-hmm. something would normally take five minutes, you're probably taking 15 minutes to, to explain mm-hmm. the same concept just through translation. Um, mm-hmm. and that's hoping that your translator actually understands the concept that you're trying to deliver. Okay. Cause if they don't, yeah. it's going to be worse. Um, yeah. so you're in this odd situation. I can't like, and obviously very quickly, you guys made a decision to, to swap full Korean. Um, as soon as you start getting into the stage, do you know that this is probably what's going to happen? Like you get into the stage, you have mostly Koreans, only two Western players. Are you looking at your son like, there's no way this is going to work. We need to, we need to do something like, I mean, I need to step down and find someone else. So there's a lot of d- to dissect there. I guess we can start with, you know, ending up with a majorly Korean roster. So the, the way it was communicated from management down to me was that heading into the season, uh, me and Ryder were essentially going to be co-head coaches. Like okay. I would I would maintain the title, but we would essentially be the, the same way the Philly is doing it yeah. with Named and Hayes. Like that was going to be the same structure the Mayhem had. So that, that was what management communicated to me. So I felt like, okay, we, me and Ryder are on the same level. We, we have the same say. And we kind of went into the trials and uh, we felt like, you know, a, a lot of the Koreans that we liked, we, we felt were really good players. We felt like they were better than the, their counterparts um, or they would fit better with the team or around the key players that we went to build around. Uh, you know, I, I don't even like Ryder had some reservations about us having too many Koreans. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I felt like, well, you know, as long as they can kind of speak English, maybe maybe it'll be fine. And then, but, but then in hindsight, there were also some players where uh, maybe I wasn't hundred percent sure about. And I thought, well, maybe this this counterpart would have been better. Um, but I maybe didn't push hard enough for for those options, which is you know also on me. But again, I, I don't feel like. Those decisions sh- should fall on, on the coaching staff. I think obviously you have to convince your your, your head coach and your lead assistants or whatever uh, of, of this, but you have to have that trust. You know, a, a very good, uh, interesting co- conversation or, or quote that Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs said: "There was one guy who he he saw in practice and he was like, no, this guy's not good.' And then the GM was like, "No, trust me, I've seen ten times more of him, and I agree this was a bad practice. Just give him another chance. He gave him a chance. Okay, when when are we signing signing this guy? Right?" I think you, you can't rely on just uh, coaches doing doing that type of scouting and then we're looking at just the trials and making decisions off of that. I think it's just, it's very, very difficult to do that. And I think b- because of that, you know, maybe I should have pushed for certain players. Maybe we should have, you know, obviously seen the, the issue 
coming. Um, th there were certain players, there were actually certain players, the uh, Western players that we were also interested in or wanted on the roster. Like, I especially wanted on the roster, but that got uh, snagged up before we had a chance. Um, you know, so, so that obviously went off the table. So we ended up with kind of getting the, you know, that, that's what we kind of end up with a full Korean, almost a full Korean roster. And naturally with, um, with us being co-head coaches or like that's how you know the organization said that it's going to be when we end up with a major league korean roster i kind of ceded a lot of control uh to writer because naturally it's very inefficient for me to do yeah. reviews have that go through a translator that goes to the players they discuss they might like it's just so much time wasting so it was it was much easier for like me and Tvik, uh, especially during the boot camp to sit with a the translator they're conversing and reviewing and they're feeding us the conclusions or she's or our translator alice at the time was picking picking it up she had a lot of experience she's an, an exceptional translator uh and and that's that's how the workflow uh worked i guess and then what when, when i would do reviews it would be you know, sort of to begin the day, something I had prepared. So it would mm -hmm. be stuff that I've already written out. I've, I have come to these conclusions. Most of it, like, it's not really going to be up for debate. You know, maybe yeah. something, the players are definitely going to ask questions. Maybe there's going to be some discussion, but generally there's not much discussion because I've really dedicated a lot of time to preparing this feedback. Where, like, these are the goals. This is what we're going to do. These are the aspects we're going to focus on. Look at how these teams are playing this. This is your, like, and, and then just kind of do that for 30 minutes and, you know that's that's sort of how the roles um, uh, got split up. But then obviously when we came back to uh, North America and uh, you know writer departed, then I'm all of a sudden put in a role like now I am the sole head coach and I am in charge of everything again. And that's when I was like, okay, shit, not like now I now that's difficult because now I have to do reviews. We don't have anyone who can do reviews as well. And who can cater both to the Western players, make sure that they're not neglected, they understand everything, that I, as a head coach, understand everything, because otherwise I'm, you know, I'm not going to know what conclusions they reach. Like everything has to be approved by me, otherwise, you know, yeah. who's who's leading the ship? And that was tough as well, because then reviews are taking so long. Because again, the the, the same thing happens where it, go, where it goes in a circle. So. That's sort of when I realized it was going to be very, very difficult. I realized also we needed to change the structure somehow. We needed to bring in uh, other coaches, like another Korean coach who could help and measure the pulse of the team. Because again, like most of the conversations happen in Korean. I can't really, as a head coach, judge a player's, like all, you, you know how Kore some Korean players are, like they might be loud and we might interpret that as, oh, are they being toxic? Are they being yeah. aggressive? But they're just being loud, and yeah. it's funny. So it's very difficult to stand in and police when someone is misbehaving or there's a problem, which is something I realized as well. Like I started getting a sniff of problems way too late. You know, some of the things again. What I said, I think a head coach needs to get ahead of issues, isolate them, right? But if if I can't identify those issues, which which I, I felt like I couldn't really do with a full Korean roster, right? yeah. there were things where I would find out like two weeks later, well, like this player is doing this, or like he's talking in this tone. I'm like, why have why was I not made aware of this before? And then I can bring in and try and solve it. But now maybe that issue has brewed for two two weeks. Someone's already frustrated. It's affecting our performance, and it just felt like I, I could not do my job. I, I'm like, we, we need to bring in someone uh, someone who is a Korean. So I think, uh, yeah, I think it was. Uh, it, it was partially that I just realized, okay, we need to go kind of in a mixed direction or we need to 
you know, have a Korean takeover. We have to go full Korean. We have, we have to do something drastic because the culture clash was just too massive. Either you're going to have Koreans who are just completely unsatisfied with the way we do things, or you're going to have Western players who are just completely unsatisfied with how we do things. And whatever you do, whatever solution you find, it's just going to be a band-aid. There's no way of solving that clash unless you, you know, go majority Western or you go full Korean. So, you know, and, and yeah, I, I felt like it was, for, for me, it was just difficult because, you know, the departure of Ryder happened uh, that late. I had to, again, reinvent how I worked with the team. Yeah. Uh, even though we did sign, eventually sign coaches, I had never worked with them. I didn't have a relationship with them. I didn't know how they would fit into the team culture. They also had to get visas once again. So even though we, we signed coaches, we didn't get them until maybe like towards the last, the, the last couple of weeks of stage one. Uh, so we ended up still like when again up in a situation where it was basically me and ST, who is a player coach, who I guess in that situation is going through the exact same things that I went through in say season one, where he just played with these guys, he was a teammate with these guys, and now he has to sever those relationships. Uh, and you know, he, he obviously worked very hard, he uh, you know, he I he really helped me because anything I asked of him, he would do, but uh, that, that was kind of what we had to work with. and. When the stage ended after the loss to Washington, it was clear we have to do, we have to make a change. And right as the stage ended, I, I I talked with management and I told them, you know, we have to make a change. If we end up going full Korean, uh, I obviously I could potentially stay in a lesser role and do kind of analytical stuff, but I don't think that's a role where I would feel like I'm getting the most out of myself, where I can really bring a lot to the table and continue to evolve as a coach. Because even though we failed last season i grew so much and i didn't yeah. feel like in this situation i would really grow so we either go go for korean you guys can go for a korean coaching coaching staff and these cultural issues hopefully go away or we sign more western players we go for more of a mixed roster and we commit to this western culture and then we sign um you know other coaches like it's some, maybe some western coaches uh, maybe move up some of the guys from Miami academy something like that and that that's what we built. Like it's one or the other. But I but I told them straight up, you know, if if we're going Western, I'm I'm gonna stay and we're gonna see this through. We're gonna fix this. If you're going full Korean, then you know I'm not the guy who's gonna see this through because you know I, I just can't I, I I can't do my job properly. It was really yeah. evident by that by that point. Um and you're just better off committing long term to to someone else and I'm better off trying to explore uh other options, you know, and you know up up until kind of up until one day or two days before we were supposed to pick up practice before stage two, I was under the impression that we were going to go. And, and again, I think this is public. I think McGravy already communicated this um, uh, on, on on his stream after the after the announcement. Uh, so I, I feel comfortable sharing this. We found out just, or I found out just two days or one day before practice picked up that uh, we were in fact not going Western. We're going full Korean. So. You know, and and that's something that kind of also made me very angry because it's it's a decision that affects my job. It affects uh, yeah. the entire team, and it's made very very late. And uh, it, it's especially since I already communicated my intentions. We're going for Korean. I'm not I'm not staying. There's no point in me staying. And kind of um, you know, like it, 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 it like that was already communicated, right? And. Yeah, so so I, I wasn't too happy about how late that decision. I was happy with either way because I understood the decision has to be made, and yeah. I knew it's it's going to impact my my job as well. But I cared about the players. I think 
whatever is best for them and the team, whatever makes the team most successful, I'm happy for yeah. you guys to reach reach that spot, you know? So I, I wasn't, there was no ego. I, I didn't mind like giving up money or anything, uh, but I just wanted, wanted a conclusion. I wanted a solution. I wanted a, a rebuild. And I think that decision just came kind of late. And that's sort of when I realized, okay, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to part ways. And again, the organization was very understanding. I've, uh, I always felt like I was very respected within the organization. I had never had like, obviously, there are things that I wasn't happy about, uh, you know, got a lot of things, but from a personal perspective, I really love all of the guys. I wish them nothing but the best. Uh, so it was a very amicable uh, split. And the same thing, uh, you know, with, with the players. I think for the players, it was more of a shock because, again, the decision happened very late, sort of leading up to stage two. And, uh, you know, I guess I can talk about that day because I went into that day when we were going to tell the players and I was just, you know, I was very... You're worried about yourself. You're worried about um, your future. You're worried about the guys. How are they going to like all these things? You're a little frustrated because you know the decision yeah. is being made so late. And you know, I left that day feeling, I guess, more fulfilled than uh, I have in a long time. Because when we told the players, like obviously they were shocked. They were shocked, yeah. especially because I was leaving. They completely understood. Um, but after that, almost all of the Korean players actually you know, came up to me uh, separately or like uh, by, by twos and were like, first of all, some of them were worried, like maybe there's something with my health. Maybe that's where I, I was leaving. Uh, maybe something I'd lost in translation, but I, you know, I sure didn't know like this is, this is why we're leaving. It has absolutely nothing to do with you guys. It's because of this decision. It was communicated before and, you know, I, I, I kind of laid it out for them. And, uh, you know, I, I just genuinely felt the love. And, and that was the, the most shocking part because, I was working with Koreans. I was working with players who I wasn't friend, friends with, who almost all of them I had really um, you know, strong conversations with one-on-one where I pushed them, where I might have yelled at them, where I wasn't happy with what they were doing. And practically all of them, you know came up and they were, you know, they were like, shit, you know, you taught me a lot. I, I really appreciated some of that have kind of kind of had tears in their eyes and especially the guys who I worked with for, for a long time, they were just like so thankful and I, like genuinely felt uh, that gratitude. And it made me feel a lot more gratitude to like ha- having been able to experience that, be part of something like that. And it made me feel like even though, because when you're in that situation, it's very easy to start questioning yourself. I failed yeah. season one. I failed season two, season two. We failed to qualify for BlizzCon with Sweden. Like everywhere I went ever since Misfits, we've just failed. And there's only so many times you can go, well, it's the organization's fault. You know, it's this or yeah. that. It's, you know, you have to look within. It's hard not lose confidence. But I felt like after that day when when that's how they reacted from what they communicated to me in those conversations, it felt like, well, maybe I did do something right. Maybe I did leave an impact on these guys. And it's also something that kind of helps me rethink everything because rather than looking at myself as oh this loser who has hasn't accomplished anything i look back at the whole mayhem saga as you know i I learned a ton from both my mistakes and the organization's mistakes and ultimately i feel like i managed to have an impact on even korean players despite this language barrier despite everything i i felt that I i felt something i didn't feel with a western roster even you know and to me it was kind of a sense of Okay, I learned from season one. I, I learned that 
I have to have these conversations with players and you know they're hard, even though they might not like what they hear uh, at, at the time, if I can kind of, you know, sort of t- take out that fire and, and put out that fire rather, they will gain respect for you. And, th- and yeah. that's kind of what, uh, what I learned. And th- these are the things that I think I shied away from a little bit during season one. And I definitely did in season two. I would have felt guilty if I didn't immediately I feel like, oh, this, this player is not performing. He's not, he's not talking. He's clearly frustrated with something. I need to bring him in. I need to talk with him. Like, these were the things I didn't do enough in season one and that I think I really did a good job and um, good job of in, in, in season two. So, you know, I, I kind of rambled on for a long time, but that's kind of the whole, the, the whole yeah. journey, I guess, up, up until this point. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel like coming out of that situation, um, I was... I was I was happy, even though I failed a lot. I I feel like I learned way more in this one and a half years than I have for you know the last twenty years of my life before that. So yeah, that makes sense. And I think that that there's something to be said there about like you mentioned that before you had more of a you had this friendship uh, like uh, bond between people, but this was mostly just mutual respect. It was yeah. professional respect, and I don't think a lot of people realize um, it, that you can have a professional respect where people still care for each other and that mm-hmm. when someone leaves, you're still sad because you respect them so much. It's, it's a lot different though. It's not just friends. It's, it's this res- level of respect that is unacquired in a lot of other ways that is very hard to yeah. replicate any other way. And I can totally yeah. see that them being like, wow, yeah. uh, this, this person has taught me a lot. He's been here. He's, he's been professional. Um, and seeing him go is going to be a loss. And I think that that yeah. would be really hard. Yeah. And so, I think, yeah. Just, just again to, to add to that, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I, I think it, what you're saying is just 100 percent true because when that the reaction is sparked out of respect, and, and again, it's sparked out of respect, but it's also coming from players who would theoretically have a reason to dislike me. Yeah. You know, players who might be benched, who might not be playing all the time. Players who I have yelled at, or really, you know, at, at times maybe been really really hard on because i feel like they weren't and you know doing their job or they were kind of letting out their frustration on someone else and i had yeah. to fix that there were a lot of players who i had those conversations with or, or, or players who maybe uh, feel like they didn't get a good enough chance to, to prove themselves or whatever and they still came forward and had that reaction to me that that just meant so much because again they have every reason from a from an egotistical perspective to dislike me uh, but for them to come out and kind of give me that type of a send off, it it really felt special. And I, I think, like you say, it it's just sparked out of professional respect, and it's only built over time. It it was built during during the boot camp, during the our struggles through stage one, through everything, you know, while I was there. And uh, yeah, it was it was something special. So you end up uh, stepping down and leaving. And one of the things you actually mentioned on Tactical Crouch is that you actually had offers uh, for either a contenders team or owls team. What made you not take any offers afterwards? So obviously having gone, even though, again, I'm very self-reflective and I'm self-critical of myself and I try to look to improve, I also understand that, you know, maybe I wasn't put in the best possible situation, especially when I look around the league and I hear how maybe how well-equipped some other teams are. I, I feel like a priority for me uh, when, when, if or when I return to the Overwatch League is I have to, first of all, be very comfortable with um, the management side of things. I have to believe in, in the culture that they're setting. I have to believe in the coaching staff. 
because if, I, if, I'm, if I'm coming in, I, I want to be able to, I do think I bring a ton to the table in terms of my experiences. And I feel like I'm versatile enough to fill virtually any role in a coaching staff. But I, I want to have coaches that I really respect who I can learn from, who I can, uh, you know, because again, because we were, I was kind of understaffed and working with like maybe one assistant um, for maybe like 98% of my tenure with the team uh, or with Florida, I never really, like most of the things that I learned were through trial and error. I didn't have a chance to kind of really absorb knowledge from someone else. And that's something I kind of miss because even as a player, I never had a coach. I never had someone to look up to. So everything I learned up until now is just trial and error. And that's a very important thing that I think a team needs to have. So I want to make sure that I land in a situation where I'm happy long-term. You know, I'm not looking to jump teams and and, uh, and do that, that type of thing. Because if you think about it, over the last three years, I've been with two organizations. Um, so, you know, I, I want to be somewhere where I feel like I'm, I can call home for a long period of time. And ultimately, I think it's difficult to find that mid-season. You know, because that's the thing. I'm not going to just sign a contract and go back into the league just to, to coach and to be in the league. I want all yeah. those things to be to be there. The same, the same way when I left Luminosity, I wouldn't have... There was maybe four or five teams that I would have joined as a player. I'm, I feel like I'm sort of in the same situation as a coach now as well. I don't want to go from kind of one dumpster fire to another, so to speak, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, want to, I, want to, I want to be part of something special and build, help build something special. And I think it's just difficult to, you know, generally it's just difficult to find that midseason. I, I had offers, but at, at this time, I guess it, it's difficult because it doesn't make, I want to maintain flexibility to make sure that I can see how things transpire during the off season. I, I want that flexibility. That's one of the kind of demands I have as a free agent right now. Mm-hmm. But from an, an organizational standpoint, it doesn't really make sense to like pay for my travel, pay for my visa, pay for all of these expenses if I might essentially only be a rental for the rest of yeah. the season and I might leave during the off season, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'm not willing to commit to just to like the end of this, to, like basically to any team. I'm not willing to commit for the rest of this season. And then the entirety of the next season when I yeah. don't know how the roster is going to shake up. I don't know what the coaching staff is going to look like. I don't know anything, you know, I don't yeah. know what direction that franchise is going to go in. Uh, so to me, it's it's a big commitment, which is why I really only commit for like one year at a time wherever I go. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's basically the biggest biggest hurdle to overcome. And that's where kind of the interests of, uh, you know, the, the teams that uh, were kind of uh, sniffing around or, or, or were interested in me and teams that I, I kind of had discussions with. That's where I, I think the biggest clash is, which is why I think if I do return to the league, it's probably going to be at some point during the off season when there is a bigger bigger shuffle where more teams are looking maybe to restructure and and things like that. So you know that that's kind of where uh, where I'm at and why I'm uh, you know committing to kind of a different craft now while I uh, sit out and kind of enjoy um, the league from the sidelines. Yeah. So now you're doing content creation as well as coaching. Um, you're doing private coaching. Um, mm-hmm. You kind of mentioned that you're not opposed to going back. Do you do you want? Is that something that you really want to do? Or because like realistically, if you're going to pursue both avenues, it's going to be very, very hard. Um, like uh, doing content creation and private or being a professional coach, right? So at some mm-hmm. point you're probably going to have to make a decision. Like which one do I want to do right now? Is it leading towards just doing content until you find a team or do you just want to do content full time? 
It's difficult to say because I'm sort of in a situation now where I'm doing content. I'm kind of enjoying myself. It's, an, again, a new craft that uh, I get to kind of utilize the skills I learned during journalism, but it's yeah. also something completely new where I feel like I'm growing every day. I'm learning editing. I'm learning how to stream. I'm learning how to put these videos together, how to kind of pack the game knowledge that I have and deliver it in an easy package to kind of digest to to the audience. I'm really enjoying all of these things. Um now, again, I'm, I'm in sort of a situation where I'm probably not like it, it just it just doesn't make sense for me to go back to the league net right now, um, considering you know, the, the best teams are well staffed. There's there's no movement, yeah. right? Um, so b- because of that, I, I'm kind of in a spot where I think I'm happy just doing content and covering the league for a couple of months. And after that, just really seeing what happens. I do I do kind of want to go back to the league. I do miss coaching and is uh, the competitive aspect you know whatever uh i've done in my life i've kind of found a competitive avenue whether it's poker whether it's video games uh, whatever it is i, I kind of miss that aspect you know mm-hmm. I, I miss being emotionally involved in the result of a game uh, so I, I do want to go back especially since i i've learned so much in the overwatch league and i think i have still so much to learn and i still think i have so much to bring to the table i, I do even though you know my Public reputation might not be great. I, I do believe my reputation within the league is a little better, and I do feel like I could bring a lot to the table that you know maybe other people can't because I just have such yeah. a long history in the scene. I have so much to bring to the table, and I do want to continue to using those skills, especially considering you know how it ended with Mayhem. I do feel like I have kind of unfinished business. I feel like I want to be part of a successful team again. I really miss it. You know the period we had with with misfits um contenders that was one of the happier times of, of my life because it was like all this hard work that i'm putting into it it's we can see the results you know um so i do miss that i do kind of want to go back into into coaching but again i'm not opposed to doing journalistic stuff i'm not opposed to doing content i guess it just you know coming down to you know how things break out if i'm if i end up being successful as a content creator maybe there's an offer to kind of uh work in, in broadcasting i would love that I, w- I would love to be part of the broadcast as well because ultimately like i said before i went to university that was kind of the dream in, in a sports realm to to talk about sports in this case to talk about esports to yeah. break it down to kind of again share the knowledge um with with the audience and share that passion that's another way you can kind of it's not a competitive way, but it's another way you can convey the passion you have for the game to a wider audience. So it, it's it's something that I would enjoy as well, I think. So it, I guess it's just going to depend on what opportunities are there, what I think is best for my long term of my of my career. But yeah, I, I, I do miss coaching. I feel like, I feel like I, I I can do a, a good job if I do uh, get another shot with uh, with a good team with a good structure. So we'll we'll see what happens. Okay. So thank you so much for being on the show. And so far it's been enlightening. Uh, I actually have only one question for you that's left. Mm-hmm. Um, arguably the hardest question, depending on who you are. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for taking the time. I think it's been really enlightening and you're an amazing human being. Like I really enjoy getting to talk to you. I like, I love doing this show cause I get to, I get to meet people in a way that it'd be like the same thing as if we were out oh, getting drinks and I was meeting you. This would be very much the similar way because this is the person that I am. Um, so I, I, I've enjoyed it so far, but the last question that I have for you, you've had the experience of being on the show. It's kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Um, not many people do a show that is like this that I know of. Um, that being said, if you could see anyone on the show who would you pick they have to speak english and they have to be involved in esports that's the only criteria for it that's a good question i don't 
really know. I think I think it's most interesting to talk to people who have been through a lot or have failed a lot because that's when you kind of get the best stories. I don't think it, there's much. I don't think it's very interesting to talk about someone who's just always winning. You know, it's just kind of oh, it's just part of my DNA, whatever. You know, so I think. I don't know if I can isolate one person, but I guess someone who has failed a lot would be interesting. Maybe actually someone who would be interesting uh, would be Wizard Young because, you know, he, he I think, again, from the outside looking, I don't really know Wizard Young that well, but from the outside looking, it feels like he went from being so highly regarded to people, you know, disregarding him completely because of the poor results of Washington. And again, I think the truth of his competence or wherever he is, you know, how, how good he is, I think it's somewhere in the middle. I don't think you can judge him yeah. just off NIXL. I don't think you can judge him just off of Washington. Uh, but he has had that had that rocky journey, which is, I think, where the best stories lie. I think that's where there's a lot of interesting experiences to, to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, maybe, maybe he'd be in, uh, an interesting test subject for you. A test subject. That's that's the way we're describing this show. Well, everyone, if you want to be a test subject on my show, Wizard Young it is. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. I don't normally do shout-outs, but if you want shout-outs, you're more than welcome to have them. Uh, yeah, not really. I mean, just, I guess, follow my content. Uh, give me feedback again, just just like you did when I was uh, an Al coach, just... Uh, pour all the shit on me. I'm going to try and take it and get uh, better from it. So yeah, you can, you can find it on Twitter. You can find it on YouTube and uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Shout out to you. It was, it was a fun conversation. It was fun to uh, kind of vent and talk about things a little bit. Yeah. It's been, it's been a blast. I want to thank you so much. Um, everyone, Mineral on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been Deep Dives into the Minds of Esports. My name is Blake Panashevitz, and until next time, I hope you have a wonderful day.